This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. What a day to come back. My goodness. By now, I am sure you have heard the news. Uh, if you haven't, then, you know, that always happens to me. I, I fall asleep, and I feel like the whole world has changed. And if you haven't, maybe you've been asleep for the last four or five hours. The FBI has raided Mar-a-Lago, uh, President Trump's home. This is tied to an investigation uh, that has something to do with classified material. It has to do with classified information that President Trump allegedly took with him from the White House to his Palm Beach resort back in January. Trump also claimed in a written statement that the search was unprecedented in American history. Now, he's right about that. We can discuss whether or not this is appropriate or inappropriate, and we're going to get uh, we're going to try and get a handle on the legal implications of this. In the third hour of the program, when we talk with veteran criminal defense attorney Jeffrey Lickman, but there's no doubt about this is completely unprecedented. We've never seen not only a former president's home raided, but we've never seen the home of one of the leading candidates for president raided. Trump is both. He's one of the leading candidates for president in 2024. He could be announcing his candidacy for 2024 in a matter of weeks or months. And he's also the immediate former president. This is wild, absolutely wild. So what I'd like to focus now on is the political implications. We could talk about the legal ramifications of this a little bit later. And normally I don't do the same story that everybody else is doing. I try to go intentionally the opposite of the way everybody else is going. But this is a story that you just can't escape. Because it's just so bizarre and so unusual. Here's my take on this. I have no idea what the FBI is looking for here. I have no idea if a crime was committed. I have no idea what the FBI is going to find. I have no idea if this investigation is being conducted in the best way or the worst way. I've seen FBI investigations go both ways. But here's my take on the political ramifications of this. I think that this does very little to hurt President Trump with his base. In fact, I think this may actually help President Trump to some extent. does two things. One is it continues this, um, this image which Trump has cultivated that it's him against the world, that it's all sides are closing in on him, and that it's Trump and his supporters versus Everybody else. And I think this could actually lead to a tremendous surge in fundraising. That's number one. Number two, I think it would also um, it also helps Trump dominate the news cycle. I mean, one of the big keys to Trump's victory in 2016 in both the primaries and the general is that he was able to capitalize in billions, not millions, but billions of dollars worth of free media 
because he was dominating the television news, even though a lot of that coverage happened to be negative. This just guarantees that Trump is going to continue to dominate the news. So I, um, it's not without precedent, either in this country or other countries, that we would see presidents run for office under indictment or see presidential candidates run for office under indictment. We saw it with uh, Eugene V. Debs, the Socialist Party presidential candidate in 1912. Those of you that are old New York radio fans may remember the radio station WEVD had Ed Koch on there, Bill Mazur, Jay Diamond, a number of others. That was actually a station that was named for Eugene, Eugene V. Debs. He ran for president from prison. And uh, I don't think LaRouche ran for office from prison. He ran he ran for president, then I think he went to prison, came out and ran again. We saw Jim Trafficking run for re-election to Congress from a prison cell. He got, I think, about 15% of the vote as a third-party candidate, one of the best third-party showings in the history of the state of Ohio. He did it from prison. In Ohio, in uh, Brazil, most recently the country the country's most popular politician and somebody that's running for president again now was the former president, Lulu, Lulu da Silva. So uh, I don't know, if you're a Trump supporter, I think this could actually feed in to his myth. I mean, maybe there will be some marginal Trump supporters who will just throw their hands up and say, all right, okay, this is just too much drama even for me. I'm ready to turn the page on the Trump show. But if you're a dyed-in-the-wool Trump supporter, Somebody that uh, is a donor to him, somebody that voted for him in the primaries, somebody that voted for him in the general. Is this really going to stop you from voting for him again? I don't know that it does. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. I had hoped to talk with uh, Alan Dershowitz about this. and I, I spoke to Alan uh, a couple hours ago and because this was a late-breaking story. It broke just a couple hours before we got on air. And he agreed to come on, but he wanted a pre-tape. And then I got stuck in the worst traffic in the world. I got here. It took me almost an hour and a half to get to, to work, which is far longer than it normally does at this time of the night. So I uh, was not able to talk with Dershowitz. He might be here tomorrow. We're going to have to pre-tape him, I think. We'll see. Uh, by then, he's going to have been on 900 different shows. But I don't want to be the fourth show that people hear him on, even though I think we'll do a different type of interview. But... Uh, I will get into some of the legal ramifications with uh, Jeffrey Lickman. And maybe we'll um, reconvene our convict-slash-lawyer panel that we've done from time to time. Maybe we'll bring that back this week as well. There's certainly a, a great deal uh, a great deal to get to. Now, 800-848-9222. Very excited to talk with Spencer Schneider. He's here. He's going to join me in studio in about 10 minutes. He's written this great book that everyone's talking about called Manhattan Cult Story, all about how people get roped up into cults, including him, successful guy, lawyer, marathon runner. And he gets hooked up with this cult that especially targeted well-to-do individuals. So we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Gene at the Jersey Shore. Hello, Gene. Frank, welcome back. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks. As you probably know, there's a collective sigh of relief among the fan, among the <laughs> fans and haters. <laughs> I'm sure. So, I'm sure some people are are, are sorry to see me back, but uh, I'm glad you've that... been reading the thread. You know, <laughs> really. It. I'm glad there's a job for me to come back to, Gene. But thanks for saying that. 
I just want to say one quick thing. I'll let you get back to your business. Uh, I've listened to Rita's show, most of it. I listened to Dominic's show, most of it. I don't know why nobody's saying Hunter Biden and the laptop. Among everything that you're saying, and I agree with you about, you know, this is not going to hurt Trump among his core supporters. But, Frank, this is a classic diversion. This is a classic misdirection play. I'll let you go. Yeah, Have well, a great night. I could see uh, – look, well, the it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. If Hunter Biden makes it out of that D- Department of Justice investigation with no indictment and Donald Trump ends up getting indicted, then I think the FBI and the Department of Justice is going to look pretty bad. Now, hopefully, hopefully the Department of Justice doesn't make all their decisions about who to prosecute based on politics. One would think – that uh, some of it is actually done based on who's committed which crimes. But uh, I think uh, I think it's going to be interesting. We'll see where that investigation goes. It's still ongoing. The Hunter Biden investi- investigation in the uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware. 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Yeah, hello, Frank. Uh, welcome back. Thank you. Appreciate it. Sure. You know, I just wanted to ask your own uh, personal opinion. Uh, do you think it's possible that there's a crack in a former President Trump's, Trump's inner circle, and maybe they're working with the Justice Department looking for something specific at the compound? Say, for instance, a person like uh, a John Dean or a Mark Felt. Well, so uh, first of all, absolutely. I mean, we've seen that was one of the biggest problems during the Trump administration is that the Trump administration would leak like a sieve. And there's a lot of different um, interests in the Trump administration and now in former President Trump's orbit. You have people that are more conventional-style Republicans, then you have people that are uh, more loyal to Trump as an individual, people he knew from the business community, people that work for him, people that are in his family. And then you have people that are more kind of populist-style conservatives. I'm thinking of folks like um, the uh, former advisor to uh, Jeff Sessions, Steve, uh, the young man, Steve. uh, uh, See, this is – I I just saw him on television, and now I – what, what, who is it? Who is it? Help me out. Who is it? No, no, no. You, I thought you said that. Uh, all right. But anyway, uh, oh, what's that, Al? Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't know. So I think uh, that it's very possible. Oh, Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller is what I was trying to think of. So you have folks like Stephen Miller that are certainly not from the same ideological um, point of, the, of, of view as folks like Jared Kushner. And all of these folks have influence with Trump. And, uh, you know, who knows what some of these folks might be involved. And I could definitely see a situation where, in fact, I think it's maybe likely that some of these folks are working with the FBI or the DOJ. Thanks, Frank. Thank you, Al. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Brooklyn. Hello, Steve. Yes, I would remind the American public that um, Washington, D.C., once elected Mayor Marion Barry. That's right. And Marion Barry uh, was arrested and convicted of both drug possession and, I believe, heroin dealing also. I could be wrong. No, it wasn't heroin dealing, and and it it was crack possession. Crack uh, possession. And he he was a felon. He went to prison for a long time. And when he was released, Washington, D.C., 
in its infinite wisdom, re-elected Marion Barry as mayor a second time, a convicted felon. Well, we've seen a lot of convicted felons get uh, elected right. before. You know, we saw Buddy Cienci in Providence, Rhode Island. Now, we're a long way away from Donald Trump being a convicted felon. What's interesting here, Steve, is let's say he's indicted six or seven months from now. I'm not saying that's likely, but it's certainly possible. That's generally what happens shortly after there's a raid and this kind of information is leaking out. And then that would be around the time that a a presidential candidacy would be beginning. So it's certainly conceivable. I'm not saying it's likely, but it's certainly conceivable that Trump could run for office under indictment. We have seen that before. Uh, Michael Grimm did it. Michael Grimm, the former congressman, Republican from New York, he got reelected under indictment. A little bit of a different situation here, but the pro- the principle holds. It does happen. 800-848-9222. Uh, David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes. Welcome back, Frank. Thanks. Um, this uh, situation, and I know none of your listeners are going to agree with me, but this is well, very first of all, serious. Don't be so sure, David. Just because a lot of the conservatives may lean, I mean, a lot of the callers may uh, lean a certain way. I, I think we actually have a more a diverse uh, listenership in terms of politics than you might think. I hope so, because this is serious. We have never had a president that took 15 boxes of material, which belong to the American people. That stuff does not belong to Donald Trump. Some of it is so classified, they can't even put into a list what it is. That's how top secret this stuff is. Now, my question is, why didn't Donald Trump return that stuff already, and what was he doing with it? Did he use it to get money from the Saudis? Did he use it to uh, get money from the Russians? We don't know what Donald Trump did, and I know your listeners and you won't agree with me, but Donald Trump is a corrupt individual who cannot be trusted with that kind of material. Well, I'm, first I of all, think, well, yeah. uh, David, whether he can be trusted with it or not, when you're the president, you have access to classified uh, material. Here, second, as you said, obviously there's no answer to your question. I have no idea what is in this material, what's in these 15 boxes, and I have no idea why Donald Trump would want it, so it's an impossible question to answer. However, here's my question, and it's equally impossible to answer, but except if you're Donald Trump. Uh, do you remember back in 2017, and maybe I'll go into this with Jeffrey Lickman, do you remember back in 2017 when Donald Trump met with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, and a lot of people... Uh, They just went crazy because Trump revealed classified information to the Russian ambassador, Kislyak. And Trump, uh, basically legal experts at the time said, well, the president can declassify anything he wants. So you could say it was a good idea to declassify it, a bad idea to declassify it. But the president gets to determine what's classified. So if Trump decides he wants to declassify it and share this with Kislyak, There's no legal remedy to stop him from doing that. If Trump knew that this material was valuable enough to take from the National Archives or from the White House to Mar-a-Lago, why would he simply not have declassified it while he was president? If the president has that that ability to declassify whatever he wants. That's sort of my question. That's what sort of doesn't make sense to me about this, but... It's like we're trying to put together a puzzle here without seeing what the picture is. You ever try that? It's possible. You could put together a jigsaw puzzle without seeing what the finished product is supposed to look like, but it's very difficult. It helps if you know what the picture is. So we're all speculating 
about what this material is and why Trump would want it and why he would take it. And we don't know what it is. So it's impossible to solve that aspect of the puzzle. Those of you that are on hold and want to chat about this, uh, we'll get to you. And uh, we are going to talk cults with Spencer Schneider, author of Manhattan Cult Story in Mere Moments. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Great profile on Lionel Richie Sunday on CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, Seems like a great guy, certainly a very talented artist. A very talented writer is somebody that we've known as a very skilled attorney for a long time. He has had a very interesting life journey, and now everybody is talking about his story. Newspapers are writing about it, and uh, the book that he's written about his experience is being talked about all over the place. Spencer Schneider is an attorney, a marathon runner, a survivor of something called school, and the author of the new book, Manhattan Cult Story, kind enough to join us in studio. Spencer, it's great to see you. Happy to be here, Frank. Thank you for having me. So, Spencer, if people didn't hear our previous conversation, you're a very intelligent guy. You're a a very accomplished lawyer. Uh, You seemed like you had a, a very sound upbringing How does someone like you get involved in a cult? Well, my story is pretty simple in that I met someone who was like me, you know, similar age, similar background, seemed intelligent, went to good schools and whatnot, and, um, you know, befriended me and asked me to come to a meeting of something, which didn't sound like a big deal to me. So I went. And so what, what did you think the meeting was that you were going to? Yeah. He said it was an esoteric school um, where you studied philosophy and it could be helpful to your life. And frankly, it sounded a little strange but not so weird that I wouldn't check it out once. And what did you find when you got there? So it was – first of all, it was all very secretive. Okay, he, I couldn't tell anybody about it. He didn't tell me where we were going which was a little strange, but basically it was a room with 60 people, very much like me, same you know, background and whatnot. Um, and we were talking about uh, the fourth way philosophy, which are these Russian mystics who have this uh, whole philosophy. And you found it impressive enough to keep going to future meetings? I wasn't blown away by it, really. I just thought it was okay. But I promised him I would go for a month. And I figured, you know... Two weeks and two nights a week, I would go to classes, and it was free, so I went. But I had a crisis that month, lost my job, mm. and the group was very supportive. You know, people were really, really nice in a way that most people aren't. And then from there, when did you? Um, how long were you involved with this? This is school, yeah. right? How yeah. long were you involved with school? Twenty-three years. Twenty-three years. Yeah. When did you realize that this was something problematic in your life? So it's a scam. You know, it's a total scam. So you don't – they they purposely hide 
what they are. You don't know that you you don't join a cult, right? You know, you're just joining a group, and over time, it slowly got more and more demanding. They're asking for you to spend more time, more money. You're helping to recruit people, and honestly, it wasn't until I left that I was I put the cult word to it because it just seemed like a demanding group. You know? Now, when you say um, more money, you mentioned this first meeting that you went to was free, right. a group of folks that's supportive of you when you're going through a tough time. When does the money get involved? When do you start giving money to this group? Right. So it was uh, – we were giving – I gave money the first month, uh, the second month. It was like $300 a month. Not a small amount of money, but not enough to really dent my wallet. But over the years, it increased, and they had – different charges for different things, and there were 300 people in it in New York. Wow. So if all of them are giving $300 a month, they're doing really well. Yeah. Wow. And what would they do with this money? Okay. So I figured it out. It was over a million dollars in cash mm. plus the a woman. Year, who, annually. Oh, yeah. Um, and, again, it was all cash. They, You know, at a certain point, some people paid checks, but it was mostly cash. You know, um, I'm not responsible for people paying their taxes or mm-hmm. not, but it definitely raised a red flag, right? Um, uh, what did they do with it? The woman who ran the cult, Sharon Gans, had a huge real estate empire. She lived in the Plaza Hotel when she died. Um, she had a ranch in Montana, a place in, Mon- uh, in Mexico City, the Hamptons, all over the place, and lived a very lavish lifestyle. Obviously, you're not totally cut off from the rest of society when you're involved with this group uh, school. When you would read about about cults and things of that nature, did you ever say, well, I mean, this sounds problematic and maybe something like what I'm involved in? Yeah. So I absolutely it crossed my mind at the beginning. But once you're in it, it never really crossed my mind, except that I mean, look. There was nobody there, you know, chanting. There were nobody in robes. There was no... Uh, no passing out poison Kool-Aid like exactly. the Heaven's Gate cult. Right. Exactly. So none of the traditional earmarks of a cult, like any of those crazy things, David Koresh, none of that happened. So what's the harm then? No, let's say nobody's advocating for you guys all to kill yourself or to stage a violent takeover of the government. A group of people, maybe the leadership, uh, is misappropriating funds, but we've seen that with a lot of labor unions, a lot of churches, a lot of charities, a lot of nonprofit institutions, a lot of political parties. Uh, if people are getting some benefit and getting some solace and getting comfort from others when they're having a difficult time, what's the harm in groups like school? Okay, so you're 100% right. If people are getting solace and comfort, um, uh, you know, people say, oh, religions are cults, right? I don't think so. People get comfort and solace, and they're not exploited. The main earmark, I think, and we were not given comfort. It, initially, it felt good, but we were mostly exploited. Money, labor, and terrible things happened to people. I mean, there was a lot of uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and arranged marriages, crazy adoptions that were uh, arranged between uh, couples. Um, uh, there was couple swapping, and there were uh, rape. There was rape, you know, of, of women, which not was not something I knew about, and it happened before my time. But um, 
this is a group that conducted this for years and years. So to get back to your question, the hallmark, I think, is exploitation, and somebody is profiting a lot. So other than the 300 bucks a month that you would fork over, how were you exploited? Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, I didn't really miss it that much, but my story was really about um, the psychological abuse. And, uh, you know, the marriage that I had was, you know, arranged. and um, To another cult member. To another cult member. Somebody who I liked very much. Um, but and how does the cult benefit from that? I guess it keeps you both in that. Exactly. We're both in it, and a lot of people are married. So we're both in it. We stay in there, and it's, more, it's better for business. I mean most things went to more money and more power, which is what this uh, cult leader liked. So, I, I, I mean, I, by the end of my time in the group, uh, at the end of 23 years, I was you know, having suicidal ideations. I was very depressed, and um, I was a wreck. I know of dozens of people who've suffered a lot and won't talk about it. I mean, people are tra- traumatized. And what became of your wife? Um, well, we got divorced before I left. Um, uh, but, you know, she's totally fine. Um, and I, we have a son who's wonderful. And Is she, is she um, also out of this uh, cult world? I, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again... When people are in it, it's very secretive, and people aren't saying what they're doing. Well, you've been very visible in your criticism. I, I mean, I imagine she's seen, you know, some of the news coverage, for instance. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure she has. But I, I also think people look away from it if they're involved and and whatnot. But I wanted to make a point. Um, I'm the only person who's spoken about it, and I want to help other people, and I want to, you know, tell the story because I'd like them to stop, mm. but they haven't stopped. So there's something – there's a group you were quoted in the New York Post and uh, actually uh, maybe it was the Daily Mail talking about the Odyssey study group. Right. What is the Odyssey study group and what's their similarity and comparison to the cult that you were a part of school? Okay. So the Odyssey study group is actually school. That's their sort of legal name that they use on their bank accounts and Mm -hmm. whatnot. But we never really refer to it as Odyssey study group. But it's the same – exact group that was started by Sharon Gans and Alex Horn back in San Francisco in the uh, late 70s. And there was a, a was a report in one of the papers a couple of weeks ago that Odyssey Study Group actually bought this $925,000 massive retreat upstate and uses essentially slave labor to dig ditches and do other work on it. What is this property? What goes on there? And uh, uh, how long has it been, you know, part of Odyssey Study Group, as you know? Yeah. So I haven't been um, – I, I wasn't involved with that property. It was purchased last year after Sharon Gans died, and I left 10 years ago. However, I have seen pictures of it, and I have heard, you know, from people who have been there, is that they basically take people um, from the city. They don't tell them where they're going, and they go up to this property, and they're they're basically building it out. I believe one of the leaders – uh, uh, lives there, and um, it's a way for them to charge more money and to get free labor. Hmm. You know? uh, so Sharon Gans is not there anymore. As no. the, she died, she died uh, last January. So, do you have an understanding of who's heading things now? Yeah, there are four people who Sharon Gans willed Odyssey Study Group to. So they own this uh, entity that collects the money. And uh, they have – one of them has a direct involvement 
with the uh, Margaretsville property. Wow. Uh, yeah. And how did you get out? What was your story of getting out yeah. of this group? So, look, I, like I said, I mean, I was very depressed. I was having a rough time. I lost, you know, my marriage ended, and I had business involvement with someone who was also in the cult. And that was sort of falling apart. The only reason I stayed in the group for, I'd say, about 10 years was because I had this marriage and I had this business relationship. And if I left the group, I'm sorry, if I, if I, if I left the group, exactly, if I left the group, um, those relationships would have had to end. And mm. I didn't want them to end. Um, what is... So if this if Odyssey study group still exists and presumably they're still uh, pilfering money in the same manner and exploiting individuals in the same manner, what is law enforcement doing to put a stop to this? Whether it's this group or other similar groups, what are what are police agencies around the state, around the country doing? Well, I mean, first of all, they're in New York. Okay, Um, I I believe a lot can be done, you know, uh, there's definitely crimes taking taking you know money from people um, under false pretenses. Um, I have questions about you know as I lay out in my book. I've heard stories. Um, uh, I've spoken to people who've been involved in money laundering there. Um, I have seen some of the books and records from uh, former members where they're showing some people paying cash, some people paying checks on mm. two sets of books. Definitely a, a red flag. And also you know there's the crime of forced labor. So, you know, hopefully somebody will pick this up um, and that's, you know, would be helpful. I, I don't want to see other people going through what I went mm. through. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Spencer Schneider. He writes about his whole story in the new book, Manhattan Cult Story. Spencer, as you say, you didn't know you were going to a, a cult meeting. How does someone know if a group that they're associating with is a cult? Right. So it, it's hard to figure out. It's just like it's hard to figure out you're being taken, you know. That's why um, they're, they're good. But here's the, here's the hallmark. If you are paying money to something um, or giving your time and it's excessive in, 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 and they're promising you a lot, that's a pretty good guess that uh, you're being taken into something. If they're promising you something – Nobody else promises. That's also a big question mark. What if a loved one, a uh, sibling, an uncle, a parent, a child, cousin, whatever, a loved one, boyfriend, girlfriend, is involved in one of these groups and you're certain that the group that uh, you know my sister is involved with is a, some sort of a cult – and they don't want to acknowledge that that's a cult. What do you do then? Yeah, that's tough. Um, I, 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 the thing, the most important thing to do is to not lose touch with this person, to make, to not argue with them, but to make sure that you're available for them. Because when you're in a cult, you're told, and they're very effective at this, to not engage with your family and friends because they're your enemies. So they flip it. So if you could disprove that by being even more loving and being more there, once things fall apart, they'll come back to so you. That's such an important point because I think it might be counterintuitive for a lot of folks who um, might be you know, likely to want to turn to something like tough love and, and be adversarial and, and smack them in the face and say, don't you see what's going on here? 
You're saying take the exact opposite approach. Be nicer. Exactly. Prove that they're wrong. Uh, um, why are you choosing to speak out now? I, I mean, I could definitely see maybe some blowback uh, to you professionally or reputation-wise. I, th- I love what you're doing, but I would imagine that there have been those that have cautioned you not to be so vocal using your, your name and your identity, putting yourself out there in, like, like in such a manner. Why are you doing that? I'm flipping it, too. I think it's, gonna, I think it's good. I mean, I, I'm not doing it so much for myself. Um, I just felt that the story needed to be told for other people to hear it. And contrary to what uh, you know, other former members have, have, have believed, I have found nothing but understanding from people. My clients love it. I mean, they, they respect me. Um, and you're a criminal lawyer? Well, I do some criminal lawyer, but I also do corporate civil mm-hmm. work. But I've done it That's because I, I, we, we were talking about – you sure. were talking about this earlier, and I had some views on it. But the, the, um, uh, the other thing is I really want to help people who are involved in this because I've been meeting people who've left the group, and they're young, and they have their whole lives ahead of them, and they're being duped. Uh, have you, since coming out with this book and being so vocal, have you had opportunities to – talk with other people that have escaped either this group or other similar cults and have their experiences been similar to yours? Yeah, I get a lot of, uh, you know, emails, texts from people who have been in other groups and saying, wow, that's exactly what happened to me. That's how I got pulled into something like this. Very helpful because I talk about the recovery. But um, I've talked to a number of people who've been in this group um, and gotten out recently and the same techniques that my group used to get me in, they're still using 30 years later. Well, how prevalent do you think cults are? I mean, you're, this is just one city in one state in one country. How prevalent does this uh, go? You know, I, I heard a statistic that, you know, some, something like 20, 30 percent of people have been involved in some way or have been touched by it. By cults and in that they've been in or somebody they've known have been in groups, maybe not as extreme as, you know, mine, but there are these multi-level marketing groups. Uh, Nexium, Nexium had, you know, thousands of people. Well, I, ju- I was just going to a- ask you about that. Yeah. So uh, the Nexium was described in the papers as a, sort of a, a sex cult. Uh, did you look at the Nexium case and say, oh, you know, that sounds like a lot what we were going through? If people haven't followed the Nexium story, what, what was Nexium or what is Nexium? Yeah. So Nexium was um, a, uh, it was basically heralded as a, as a method whereby people could improve their lives. And it's known as a multi level marketing uh, situation where people basically take classes. And then they have to take more classes and more classes until they're finally spending all their income on these classes to improve their lives. And they also have to bring in other people. There are a lot of other multi-level marketing uh, opportunities that aren't cultish, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Amway is is one, right? Right. People have said that is, but I I, I don't know specifically. I don't think – I think it's legitimate. Uh But people have complained. I mean, people say – Soul cycle is a cult. I mean, mm-hmm. because people are so fanatical about it. But that's well, not that, a cult. Well, that's the thing is, you know, through throwing that cult word around, you know, it seems like Nexium is one thing, and then we use the the word cult to describe anybody that's uh, 
enthusiastic about adherence to something. Yeah, no, I mean, there's certainly overlap. I mean, fanaticism is, you know, is out there. It exists, but that's not necessarily a cult. And people aren't necessarily, you know, lose all of their um, abilities to use rational thought. I mean, I, you know, sports fans, I'm a fanatic about certain things. Sure, right. right. We all are. Right. We're passionate. Uh, you know, one of the groups that often gets compared to a cult, including by some former members, is Scientology. Right. Have you looked at Scientology at all? And what, what's your take on Scientology? Yeah. I mean, I read Leia Romini's book, which is excellent. And from what she describes, if what she's saying is true, I mean, they're a cult. Uh, they fit all the mm. hallmarks. Charismatic leader. A lot of people who left are unhappy. I mean, you don't hear any people who left that group who say, oh, it was good. I really helped me a lot. You don't hear that. You have said that uh, Odyssey Study Group went out of their way to sort of target influential and well-to-do people, right? Yeah. And it would seem like maybe Scientology, at least if what you, what you hear from people like Leah Remini has said, um, they may uh, employ some of the same tactics. Yeah. I mean, people th – th these groups also t go after people who are um, inquisitive and want to think. And, uh, you know, it's more than just, you know, sort of kind of devil worship or something like sure. that, you know. So there could be some positive things involved in a cult-like setting, whether it's, you know, Nexium or Scientology or Odyssey Study Group or anything like that. Yeah. It's not all forced labor and exactly. forced marriages and forced adoption. Right. Uh, if it were, nobody would stay. I mean, right. there has to be some good reason. In fact, that was one of the hardest things about writing the book was to figure out, well, why did I stay? Mm. You know, what was good about it? What did I find there? Um, and what did you come up with? Yeah, a lot. Um, well, there was this community, this camaraderie with other people. We thought we were doing something important. And I liked, you know, I had missed... The intellectual aspects of it. I mean, going to work is, you know, it's the same thing, mm. you know. But this, I was studying something different, and I thought it was helping me. Um, I mean, look, people love to go to book clubs or... Sure. No, 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 absolutely. That, that's why I, I wonder, at what point do you, uh, do you think that uh, something <laughs> get, crosses <laughs> exactly. that line? Uh, you mentioned your son. Now, obviously, you and your ex-wife were both part of this Odyssey study group when you got married. Is there, how old is your son? He's 23. Is there any concern that he, you know, might get involved in something like this? No, they didn't. I mean, this group does not target children, although they did have some, uh, you know, um, indirect involvement in knowing Sharon Gans. But, you know, I, I don't have any worries about him joining anything. That's great. If people have questions, if they want to get in touch with you uh, to either discuss your book or if they have similarly individual, ta individually tailored cult-like questions, what's the best way for them to get in well, touch with I, you? Well, I have a website. It's Spencer-Schneider, or you can email me at Spencer3000 at gmail.com. Great. Spencer3000 at gmail.com. Spencer, thank you for coming in studio. It's great to see you. Uh, please keep us posted on this, and uh, you're welcome anytime. Oh, great. Love to be here. Thank you. Spencer yeah. Schneider. You want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Sinatra, Bang Bang, uh, had a whole revival a few years ago. Came out in the 60s, but uh, had a whole revival as part of the soundtrack to Kill Bill Volume 1. That's one of the many things that's so great about Quentin Tarantino as a, as a filmmaker, not as a person, is that he'll sort of rediscover old movie stars or old uh, artists or old songs that people kind of just forgot about and brings them back into relevance. He did it uh, to some extent with John Travolta, did it to some extent with Robert Foster and uh, Pam Greer, and with songs like this one. So, uh, big fan of Nancy Sinatra. So, I've been uh, talking um, between the breaks with uh, with Matt Blaze, and uh, Matt, uh, you sound like you have an awful frog in your throat. Yeah. So what's your deal? Why are you? This is the why end are you of the coming cold. to work sick? No, no. This is the end at this point. It this happened. is this happened. This has been going on since a week. Well, you so you've been sick for a week, spreading germs all over the place. It, well, Ken gave it to me. Oh, okay. You blame <laughs> it on Ken. No, it, it was my fault. See, why are you coming to work sick? Why is anyone coming to work sick? I, I got to persevere. <laughs> Did Alex Barnard get sick? Yeah, I actually. He was the first right. one. Right. I remember, remember him coming to work. <laughs> yeah. 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 He comes. I don't understand you guys. You, you but should, I get it the worst. Stay home. Stay home. None of you are 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 so essential that the world will stop spinning on its axis. It's just a cold. Your yeah. show wouldn't stop spinning on its yeah. axis. We, 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 we would find a way to get by. You know what? It would stop spinning if, if I'm struck with laryngitis because I get a cold from one of you. Which almost happened. So it, go, it went from <laughs> Alex to Kenneth. And now to you, and you claim that you're on the back end. Of this it. is the back end, yeah. All right. And yeah. who did you infect? Do we know? No one. All right. Well, I stay over here. Uh, well, thank you all <laughs> for uh, holding them down the fault, fault, the fort last week. How'd it go with uh, Curtis? What were your impressions? Oh well, I mean, it was it was a wild ride. He uh, he had us talking about how you were in Greece and. You know, uh, he he had all these bizarre theories and things cooked up. You know, he just he, he's a character that Curtis. That he is. That he is. Well, I'm glad it, glad it went well. Now I remember when I last left you, you were getting annoyed with me because I had the audacity to do things like ask you for things five days in advance, audio tests, and so forth. And now, you, wait a you were looking forward to a, a frank break, which I don't blame you. Everybody needs a frank break once in a while, especially the audience. Um, I, now, a big part of me was hoping that Curtis would give you a harder time than I gave you. How did that turn out? Did he give you a harder time at all? So, no, here's the thing with Curtis. He does ask for a lot. He and yeah, I know. I, well, I, of course. No, I know. you. Yeah. And right. uh, to the point Ace where. do not. <laughs> to the point where, I mean, you know, when I, at least when I work with you for the other shows, I can somewhat pay attention to them a little bit. You know, I, I, I'm still able to get things done. But. At least with Curtis, it he asks for everything at least sound wise a couple hours in advance. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. For you, I wasn't getting mad at you that you had asked for something five days, five days in advance. It was right. something that you had sent me, you know, thirty sound bites to cut an hour before right, well, airtime. That's fair. All yeah. Right. 
Well, I brought you a magnet from. Uh, make sure there's no uh, price tag. Yeah, oh. I brought you a magnet from Cape May for your oh, refrigerator. Oh, well, thank you very much. Enjoy. Yeah, this I was, looks great. I was going to look for something more substantial, and then I, I saw my uh, credit card bill. And I realized I'm not really in a position. Too bad my uh, fridge door is made of wood. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Are, no, you, I'm teasing. I love it. No, this you is, have this a is wooden great. refrigerator. Is that no? It's not actually made of wood, but the door is wooden. So you have no refrigerator magnets. No. All right, so give me that. I'll give you something else. Yeah. I'll, I'll, give the, I'll give this to Christian Matos, who runs our, our local Oh, that, yeah, that's nice. That, that's a guy with a metal refrigerator. All right. Um, so How do you know that? Well, I could just tell. You could tell the type. Uh, you okay. could tell the type. So. It's a personality type for everything. Exactly. All right. Thank you, Alex. Well done. Well, it's good to see Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> it's good to see you, too. All right. Now, one of the things that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago is when... It's time to call it quits. Now, that was largely a result of Ric Flair's decision to have one final wrestling match at 73. Now, Ric Flair, for those of you that don't know, is the 16-time heavyweight champion of the world. There's not a federation that Ric Flair hasn't won their championship belt. NWA, WCW, WWF, whatever the case may be. The guy for 40 I'll say for 40 years, even though his career spans 50, for 40 years, the guy was dominant in pro wrestling. And when people who don't follow pro wrestling don't understand this, they say, oh, what does that mean? How, how can you be dominant in an industry where the outcome is predetermined? As an entertainer and an athlete, there was nobody better than Ric Flair, period. Additionally. Ric Flair was in a plane crash in the early 1970s, which almost ended his career. And to me, the fact that Ric Flair was able to come back and have that kind of a career after that plane crash is, to me, amazing. I put it on par with Curtis recovering from being shot and doing all the things that he did after that. Now, uh, so and he was my favorite wrestler. The last thing I'll say about what made Ric so great is that he really lived his gimmick. You know, there are certain wrestlers that, uh, The Undertaker, for instance, you know, he walks around taking people's souls and burying people in caskets. The real guy that plays The Undertaker, Mark Calloway, he doesn't do that. He's apparently as nice a guy as can be. Mankind. Mankind acts like a mental patient. You ever meet the guy that plays Mankind, Mick Foley? He's not like that. Ric Flair is Ric Flair 24 hours a day. So they announced about five months ago that they're going to have this Ric Flair's last match. So I think we all had a pretty good idea what we were in store for. And Matt Blaze, who follows wrestling as well, he even said to me on the year, you know it's going to be terrible. So that being said, I'm not really in a position where I'm flush with cash right now. Those of you that have ever had an eight-month-old and a mortgage and dealing with inflation, I'm sure know what I'm talking about. I really did not want to spend the $32 for this Ric Flair pay-per-view. But then I thought to myself, if this is Ric Flair's last match, how do I not spend the $32 on this? I said, I, I know it's going to be disappointing. I know it's going to be bad. because There's a reason there are no 73-year-old wrestlers. It's, it's not a sport. It's, it's meant for 22-year-olds, not 73-year-olds. That being said, don't I owe it to Rick for a lifetime of happiness and joy that he's brought me to fork over $32? I wish I could just give him the money.
But I ordered this pay-per-view, $32. I have to say, I had a lot of impressions about this. And it was a tag team match. It was he and his son-in-law against Jeff Jarrett, who is another old-school wrestler. Not as old as Rick, but a guy that I really like. And uh, his tag team partner, Jay Lethal. The undercard on this match, uh, the whole pay-per-view, was pretty good. You had a lot of, it was a good mix of older wrestlers, younger wrestlers. Um, There was a female match that was very good. There was the son of an older wrestler that I liked. uh, A couple of second-generation superstars. The, 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 The most of the undercard leading up to the main event was really interesting. Then the match itself occurred. Matt, did you watch it? I did not. You did not. Okay. I've tried to see it. I've tried to okay. find it. I, I think you made the you made the right decision. <laughs> I mean, I saw I got busted open. I, I, I got. I have to say, uh, look, Ric Flair should be able to end his career how he wants. But you said this um, when we talked about this. Yeah, his match with Shawn Michaels in two thousand eight. That's how his career should have ended. Absolutely, it should have. He should have not. He should have done what he said at the time yeah. and not set foot in a wrestling ring. In a wrestler's role, he could be a manager or commentator, or whatever, special guest referee, anything else. He should not have wrestled after that. And he, and I, I think this fight, this wrestling match was very difficult to watch. Uh, honestly, one um, you could tell Flair was laboring through this and was having a very difficult time. Two, it looked. In, I mean, I know this is silly for non wrestling fans to hear. It looked incredibly fake. And um, Flair did almost not, nothing. I mean, there were a couple of nice moments. He did end the match with his um, f- with his patented figure four leg lock, which he's so well known for. But Flair's shoulders were on the ground at the time that he had Jeff Jarrett's, uh, you know, in the figure four leg lock. So Flair should have been eliminated. It, they were both of them had their shoulders on the ground. And if you go by the rules of wrestling, um. They both should have been eliminated. He should have been counted. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was, again, I knew it was going to be ridiculous, and it was. I was hoping there would be a couple of surprises uh, that would have a little bit of that flair magic. And And I feel bad criticizing flair because of how I've looked up to this man my whole life and what he's meant to me as an entertainer. But this was a shame. It was a shame. He, as Matt mentioned, he did end the match in a crimson mask, which also looked uh, kind of fake the way it happened. Now, Ric Flair cut him, himself with a, a razor blade to, to, so that he would bleed. And that was sort of his one of the things that he did better than anybody over the years because he had that bleach blonde hair. So the red blood over his bleach blonde hair, it just looked great. And he did that. And I know he did it for the fans. But it didn't, it, it didn't come across as well as it did 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. So I hope this is it. I hope there's not a Ric Flair's last match part two next year. Let me uh, end as we go to break with Ric Flair's words at that match afterwards. It happened better the last time. To have you here in the greatest wrestling town, one of the greatest, I hate to say greatest because then everybody gets upset, but... I had one of my best matches of my career here with Ricky Steamboat. All my family's here. We've made jokes about me being married five times. While all the kids are here. Best of luck, Ric Flair. In the words of Bob Barker, help control the pet population to get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now here's Frank Morano. Well, uh, we have not forgotten this Mar-a-Lago raid story. We are uh, keeping an eye on that. As there's any news, we will bring it to you, and uh, we'll have an analysis in about an hour with uh, Jeffrey Lickman, veteran criminal defense attorney, who uh, is pretty outspoken when it comes to politics. Now, one of the things that's a little frustrating to me is that... uh, When it comes to I've talked about this before, when it comes to all things Trump, it seems like no one can be objective. And that's why, except Alan Dershowitz, Dershowitz really does seem capable of offering just legal analysis, whether he's uh, supportive of the, the person or not supportive. He seems to call balls and strikes. At least that's how it appears to me. The frustrating thing to me is everybody in the world seems to inject their own political view into objectively viewing this Trump raid situation. And that's the thing that I want to caution everybody not to do is let's view this as we would any other case. Now, the reason that what I just said is so ridiculous is because you can't. Because there's no other similar case like this. This is sui generis in American history. There are some parallels with the Hillary Clinton email investigation. There are some parallels with the Sandy Berger stealing, that's uh, President Clinton's former national security advisor, stealing documents from the National Archives. But those people were not leading candidates for president and former presidents. So this is a really wild situation and I'll look, I don't think Jeffrey, because Jeffrey is pretty opinionated when it comes to politics as well, I don't think he's going to be able to um, keep politics out of his view of this. But I'm going to keep trying anyway. So that's where we are. Now, uh, one of the things, I was on vacation uh, last week. I just got back today, actually, or yesterday. And one of the things that uh, I tried to do was largely disconnect. I didn't listen to a lot of radio. I tried to stay off my phone. But one of the things that I did do 
and I will always make sure to do every Saturday, is watch Michael Smirkanish's show. Michael Smirkanish is a radio talk show host. He's been a guest on this show, and he's somebody that uh, I have a lot of respect for. I find him really special in terms of radio commentators and certainly in terms of TV commentators. So he does a show on CNN Saturday mornings. In my view, it is the only thing worth watching on CNN. And I I think it's just so original and so unique. And so I caught most of his show on Saturday, uh, not all of it because we were having some difficulties accessing CNN and we were having some, you know, some other some other difficult things. He did this interview with Roger Waters. Now, Roger Waters has been at the heart of a lot of controversy for a while now. Roger Waters, I don't think anybody can dispute, is one of the most talented musicians of all time. He is 78 years old now. Still an incredible influence on rock music. He was uh, the founder, the co-founder, I guess, of Pink Floyd. He was the uh, the bassist and then um, was the lead vocalist for a time. And so many of the albums that they came out with, Pink Floyd, were nothing short of revolutionary. Dark Side of the Moon, um, The Wall, a bunch of others. And he's done a lot of solo work as well as a musician that has been very highly regarded. Now, he's also become incredibly controversial and outspoken regarding his political positions, mostly with foreign policy. You know, he's very critical of Israel, very supportive of the uh, Palestinians, but not just that. A whole bunch of other things. Um, He became... Very outspoken in terms of um, opposing Brexit, very critical of Donald Trump. I believe he was also critical of uh, Obama as well. And sure enough, now he's critical of Joe Biden. Now, I know from listening to Smirconnet. Now, when Trump was president, just to give you an idea of where Roger Waters was coming from, Waters if I remember correctly, because I remember I was working at another conservative talk station when Roger Waters performed in New York. And a a guy that I worked with was a big Roger Waters fan. And he was conservative. And he went to see the Roger Waters show. And I said, how was it? He tells me the next day, it was great. The guy still has it. The music was great. The crowd was electric. But I had a real tough time at the beginning of it. I don't remember who said it was the beginning of the end. When they have Donald Trump come out as a giant inflatable pig. And I really didn't like it. I really wish he would just play the music and not have that stuff there. And Roger Waters has a lot of fans like that. A lot of fans who like his music, but either don't like his politics or wish he'd just keep his political opinions to himself. So Roger Waters does an interview with Smirconish this past Saturday. I have to tell you, this interview was great. I thought this was an interview, and I agreed with certain things that Smirconish said, and I agreed with certain things that Roger Waters said. 
But this was an interview where I actually came across, I came out of this interview liking both men more than I did previously. I thought Smirkanish did a good job, and I thought Roger Waters did a good job. And Smirkanish begins the interview by playing the quote that starts each Roger Waters show. And there's a picture, just so you understand, there's a giant picture, as you hear this audio that I'm going to play you, of Joe Biden with the words war criminal underneath Biden. So he was not crazy about Obama, did not like Trump, and now calls Biden a war criminal. This is how all the Roger Waters shows begin these days. Because it's a really good way to start the show. But apart from anything else, it's well, let me pause here. So I, I let me jump in here if Name I can. It. So yeah, I, I thought we actually had that audio. So the the way that the Roger Waters shows begin now is something to the effect of um, Roger Waters' voice shows Biden with war criminal who is just getting started. It says Biden, and then it has in big letters war criminal who's just getting started. So then. It says in words or substance, if you're one of these people who says, I like Roger Waters music, but I don't like him talking about politics, then you can just F off. And he doesn't say F. He says the full word. And when he says that, the crowd goes crazy. So Smirkanish asks him, why do you begin your show that way? Because it's a really good way to start the show. But apart from anything else, it sets a few things straight. Namely? It, well, it, it also encourages a lot of the people who have come to the show. Um, a, because they have listened to everything I've written since, you know, 1965 or whenever I started writing songs. So they do know what my politics are and they do understand where my heart is. And they understand sort of why I'm there. But maybe it also gives a message to people who don't want to be there, in which case them effing off to the bar is probably not a bad idea. Except that, you never know, those people, if they sit in a community like my audience is on these shows of This Is Not A Drill on this tour... There is such a great feeling of communication in that room between me and the audience and between us combined with all our brothers and sisters all over the rest of the world, irrespective of who they are, where they live, their ethnicity, their religion, their nationality or anything else. Because if this is not a drill, has a message, it is that we have to communicate one with the other. So... I would like to ask you the question, and Smirkanish asked this question in a survey on his website. He asked, do you support entertainers even when you disagree with their politics? What do you think? Now, maybe some of you are conservative and big Trump supporters, and you don't like the things that someone like Robert De Niro says about Donald Trump. Do you still support De Niro's work? Do you still patronize his films? Uh, same thing if Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins, maybe. Or if you're a progressive, maybe you don't like um, uh, an actor like John Voight being so outspoken politically. Or if you're a music fan, maybe Roger Waters goes a little too far. 
You want to just hear him play another brick in the wall. You don't want to hear him go off about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, uh, Laura Ingram had written that book, Shut Up and Sing, which basically takes the attitude of, well, you know, we want these entertainers to entertain us. If you're a singer, go ahead and sing. You don't have to go and pontificate. Um, where, where do you come down? If a celebrity like a Roger Waters, like a John Voight, like a whomever, chooses to go the extra mile and be vocal politically, do you hold that against them? Do you stop patronizing their show? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is some more of Smirkanish interviewing um, Roger Waters on Saturday. To the guy who says... Shut the F up. Play the hits. Do you want him, as long as he doesn't shout it out, do you want him in the arena? I don't not want him there, so long as he doesn't annoy the people who do understand what's going on in the arena. I'm I'm happy for him to be But I'm saying, like, do I have to buy in? Does a a person in the crowd have to buy in to the message? I've always loved the music. Right. Some, Some of the messages I can buy into and some I can't. I've only got one message. Two strangers passing in the street, by chance two passing glances meet, and I am you, and what I see is me. That is my message. And that was on Medal, which was in 1970. And basically, my message hasn't changed. I recognize your humanity, but I recognize all the Russians and the Chinese and the Ukrainians and the Yemenis and the Palestinians. So it's interesting what he's saying there. He's saying that he's always been this political and that it's not a recent thing for him that he decided to flip a switch and become political. He's been as political now as he was in 1970. What about it? Do you support entertainers even when you disagree with their politics? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. Talking about this Roger Waters interview with Michael Smirconish on CNN, which made a lot of news and I thought was actually very, very good. So they both came across really well. 800-848-9222. Now, Smirconish asks him about the fact, well, wait a minute, you called, um, you called Trump a pig, and now you're calling Biden a war criminal who's just getting started. What about it? I mean, can you offend everybody this much? Are you an equal opportunity offender on this tour? Here's why I ask. I remember the last tour. Of course, I came and watched very much, you know, about Trump. And in the current show, you've got a montage of war criminals, according to you, and a picture apparently of President Biden on the screen, and it says, just getting started. What's that all about? President Joe Biden? Yeah. Well, he's fueling the fire in the Ukraine for a start. That is a huge crime. Why won't the United States of America uh, encourage Zelensky, the president, to negotiate obviating the need for this horrific, horrendous war but you're, that's you're, killing. You're blaming, how, we don't know how many Ukrainians But you're blaming the party Russia. that got invaded. Come on, you've got it reversed. Well, no, I, well that's, that you, you know, any war, when did it start? What you need to do is look at the history and you can say, well, it started on this day. You could say it started in 2008. Okay, it's basic. this war is basically about... The action and reaction of NATO pushing right up to the Russian border, which they promised they wouldn't do when Gorbachev negotiated the withdrawal of the USSR from the whole of Eastern Europe. 
And this is where I like Smirkanish because Smirkanish is not afraid. Now, I agree with much of what Roger Waters said there, but Smirkanish is not afraid to stand up for America and point out the great things that America has done in terms of being uh, the greatest liberatory force on the face of the earth in, in worldwide history. So Smirkanish says, well, what about all the great things America has done? When you say this, then I have to say, what about our role as liberators? You of all people, with, you have with no your, role as liberators. World what are you War II, World War II. You, you, you got into you World lost War II because it's Pearl Harbor. You, Pearl Harbor. You were completely isolationist until that sad, that devastating. I, I would argue awful we were always in, going to in get in, and that pushed us in. But thank God the United States got in. Right? Well, you lost your father well, in World War II. Thank God well, yeah, the United thank States... But right? thank God the Russians had already won the bloody war almost by then. Don't forget, 23 million Russians died protecting you and me you from would, the Nazi you, menace. Hey, and you would think the Russians would have learned their lesson from war and wouldn't have invaded Ukraine. Well, you, you with all your reading, I would suggest you... Michael, <laughs> that you go away and read a bit more and then try and figure out what the United States would do if the Chinese were putting um, nuclear-armed missiles into Mexico and Canada. The Chinese are too busy encircling Taiwan as we speak. Okay? They're not encircling Taiwan. Taiwan <laughs> is part of China. And oh. that's been absolutely accepted by the whole of the international community since 1948. And if you don't know that, you're not reading enough. Go and read about it. Now, you got to give the guy credit. He's spirited. And Smirkanish stays in there. He stays in there. He doesn't turn it into a shouting match. And you can't see it on radio. But Smirkanish starts smiling at that point. Uh, because clearly he's in it. It's like if I was to argue politics with uh, Ric Flair. And Ric Flair is very political. But you can tell Smirkanish is getting a kick out of the fact that he's getting to interview someone who he's always had a, some admiration for. And two, he's not taking this as a personal affront. I wish we had more people, not just in journalism, but in life, that take this approach to tough conversations. You know, there's a big, con- uh, a big question mark as to who Chris Licht is going to put on CNN at 9 p.m. in place of Chris Cuomo. Now, I'm sure if whoever gets it, they're going to make fit into whatever kind of format that they're doing at 9 p.m. But Smirkanish has filled in in that 9 p.m. slot. I would love to see him get that because I'd love to see more journalism like this on a daily basis. You don't see this anywhere on cable news. The only two shows you would ever see something like this on, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, Michael Smirkanish on CNN. And I love the note that Smirkanish ends this show, this interview on. Okay. Did we solve anything here this today? Is, no. Well, yeah, we did. Well, I mean, no, we didn't. Because I mean, Nancy, you're, believe, Nancy, you're believing your propaganda, your side's propaganda. You're defining but it as Taiwan, propaganda. You, cannot, you can't have a conversation about human rights and you can't have a conversation about Taiwan without actually Roger, doing the reading. Roger, if you're having a conversation about human rights, at the top of the list of offenders are the Chinese. Why is it always the Western uh, world? The top of why, your list? why is it the always Chinese the Western didn't world? invade Iraq and kill a million people in 2003? In fact, as far as I can recall, hang on a minute. Who have the Chinese invaded and murdered, slaughtered? In Their the own. 
their own. Bollocks. Okay. That's absolute nonsense. <laughs> Complete nonsense. You should go away and read, but read some proper... Hey, my problem is I spend too much time reading your liner notes, okay? 800-848-9222. Uh, should celebrities just stay out of politics? And let's say they don't. Look, a lot of you are very outspoken when it comes to politics. Maybe a lot of celebrities think, hey, I feel the same way. Uh, I have a platform. Why shouldn't I be able to use it to uh, get my opinion out there? If a celebrity, an entertainer like a Roger Waters or a Robert De Niro expresses an opinion you don't like, do you stop patronizing them? Yes, no, why, why not? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Kevin in Newburgh. Hello, Kevin. Yes, Frank. How are, good morning. Morning. Welcome back. Great to be back. Thank you. Yes, my, uh, you know, the person I called about was Jane Fonda. Uh, Jane Fonda not only is outspoken, which is very understandable, I, I can accept that, but she went to North Vietnam at the same time I was in South Vietnam. So she is, I have never been able to forgive her, mm. nor has she, she ever asked for my forgiveness. And I, I think she's a wonderful actress. I mean, so I watched her on TV. I don't know if I'm contributing to her coffers that way, but I refuse to ever go to one of her movies. So I will never. That's interesting because of the whole Hanoi Jane thing. You you won't watch her films anymore, but because you admire her work as an actress, you'll still watch her on television. Or I mean, no, I don't go to the movies. I mean, I you know. So, I mean, I watch her on TV, but, yeah, I would never pay a cent to go to watch her. Whereas, I mean, somebody like, uh, oh, I can't think of who you just mentioned, who we talked about, uh, De Niro. De Niro. I mean, I, I I hate his politics. I think he's a rude gentleman. But he, I think he's a great actor. I love his movies. And you so know, you would I mean, still pay to see a Robert De Niro film? Yes. So, yeah, now, well, Kevin, I, I would I would also, right? Um, so why... Um, I guess the difference for you is not speech, it's activism. If you go into a war zone and you make a common cause with an adversary who American troops are 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 being shot at by, that to you is a bridge too far. Well, especially in this case. But again, I was in South Vietnam. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I mean, hey, I... No, that I mean, may... I just, and again, she just never, ever asked for our forgiveness. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense, Kevin. Makes sense to me. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Welcome back, Frank. 14 million people have popped champagne corks tonight. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be back. I'm glad you're back. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little different. Well, I'm not really different. See, if somebody does something I don't like, I, I just don't have anything to do with them. When Kaepernick took a knee, I haven't seen a football game since that time. When they put BLM on the mound in baseball, I haven't watched a baseball game. Unlike Bernie and Sid, who also said they weren't going to watch, but then they started watching again, I stuck to it. I, I, I don't miss it, and they could go jump in the lake for all I care. Uh, for De Niro, I couldn't care less about De Niro. When he said he wanted to punch Trump in the mouth, someone should have get him a good kick in the butt. So your no, view, no. Neil, is you're not watching any of these celebrities. You're not you're not per- patronizing any of these folks that are outspoken in an area that you differ greatly with them in. That's 
That's right. But, you know, I, and I don't mind them saying what they want to say. They have every right to say what they want to say. The only person in the, in the United States who can't say anything is Donald Trump. But everyone else <laughs> can speak. You know, but they want to speak all right ahead. It doesn't mean they got to follow him, Frank. I just have nothing to do with him. And I don't miss it, Frank. There's plenty of things for me to do uh, without going to follow these people. Uh, Neil, thank you very much for the call. Uh, 800-848-9222. By the way, I just um, linked to that full interview, that the full uncut interview that Roger Waters did with Michael Smirconish. If you want to watch the whole thing, it's about 28 minutes. I thought it was really interesting. And it's the kind of thing you don't see on cable news, which is why, for the most part, I don't watch cable news. It's on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Matt Blaze, where do you come down on uh, patronizing celebrities? Oh, you don't seem like you, you, you get I don't care. crazy about politics. Yeah, I was anyway. thinking the same thing about are you, football. Are you even registered to vote? Yes. You are registered. But you don't get crazy about it. No, I'm registered independent. And with football, baseball, I could care less what they say. I'm still going to watch it. You think... If I don't watch football, you really think that's going to make a difference? Well, I mean, the theory is that if enough people do, then it will lead to the, yeah, a change. In, in theory, right. but that's not reality. The reality is people are still going to watch it. Now, do I like that they took a knee? Did I like Kaepernick? No. I didn't like it at all. But it's not going to make me not watch football or not watch a movie or not watch an actor because I don't agree with them. We can agree to disagree. That's what makes the world go around. Yeah. Well, so I guess, though— what Kevin is saying, right, is that Jane Fonda's outspokenness went beyond just agreeing to disagree. She went to basically endorse, for lack of a better description, people that were shooting at Americans. I mean, that is, and he was in a, a he, and he was also yeah, involved. So I, I can understand. So I can where understand yeah, from his point, I, I can understand. And a lot of folks, and I think Ellen just posted something similar to this in the Facebook group. A lot of folks they view. Roger Waters' antipathy towards Israel as being not just critical of a foreign policy series of foreign policy decisions, they view it as blatant anti-Semitism. So, look, uh, if you're somebody that views the views being anti-Israel as being the same as anti-Semitic, then I can understand maybe maybe you can't bring yourself to patronize that person's music at all. I know Alex Barnard is a music aficionado. Where do you come down on this? Um, honestly, for me, I've found a really interesting correlation between the fact that if there's a musician whose politics I don't agree with, chances are a lot of the times I already didn't like their music. Like Kid Rock, for example. You don't like Kid Rock? Oh, God, no. And what are, he's conservative, right? Yeah, he's yeah. super conservative. Um, I what, mean, what does that even mean, super conservative? I mean, he's the he's the guy, you know, with the drinking the Coors Light with the, like, uh, Confederate flag hanging around himself. Oh, okay. You know, right, like okay. the kind of a, uh, maybe not conservative, but it's like a caricature of it. Right, okay. You know? All right, uh, that's um, a good description, okay. But, um, I mean, no, never liked his music anyway. Um, there's a band called... What about I- All Summer Long? That's a great song. You don't like that no. song? No, no, I love no, that song. no, no. And it's a ripoff of um, it's, Sweet Home it, Alabama. It's derivative. It's derivative. Yeah. You know, I, I like Kid Rock. I don't care for his politics. But he I, was I at Ric Flair's last match. Did you see that? Was he? Yeah, yeah Ric Flair gave him a shout-out in his... Uh, they went and partied yeah, after to bleep the that. show. I'm yeah. sure, sure they did. Yeah. See, I, I, and I like Kid Rock. I don't like his politics. And I... And, and, in terms of his music, yeah, he makes good music, but Kid Rock is the biggest poser around in terms of he started out as trying to be a hardcore rapper. And then 
it didn't work for him. So yeah. then he went to rock and First roll all, and okay. rap and now, roll and he got I, I singing now, lessons now and he you, came out, you, you know. As you so often manage to do, Matt. You have taken us down a, a totally different right, well, rabbit okay. hole. I like That's Kid Rock. That's a reinvention discussion. I uh, like Kid Rock, but I don't like his politics, but I'll still listen to his music. Yeah, but so uh, the, uh, there is, is Kid Rock, though, as offensive and outspoken as a Roger Waters or a Robert De Niro? I guess he is. In your he, uh, he definitely is. I mean, he's – and he's always said – or not always, but I mean, especially now, he's come out with a bunch of songs that are, you know, sort of anti-vaccine and things like that that I'm kind well, of – so did Eric Clapton, right? Do you not like Eric Clapton's music? I, I do like Cream, I, it, but that's the thing. I liked Cream. I am not a huge fan of Clapton's solo career. I see. Or, you know, Derek and the Dominoes and things like But will you still listen to Eric Clapton? I'll still listen to Cream. Uh, but so, that's because he's not the only musician in Cream. It's, you know, it's also Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. I know, but I feel like your whole theory of uh, I don't like their their music already, and it, it usually it turns out that I don't uh, I don't like their politics— it's all it's all gone to bullets. Well, to use Roger Waters' term. Fair enough. I mean, I guess the other part of it is that if there's somebody whose politics I find are really heinous, I wouldn't listen to I think it because lose, there are plenty of metal I think you bands. Lose that round, Alex. Well, I guess so. I mean, but there uh, there are metal bands who have well, no, Nazi ties about and folks, things like that. Well, I don't but, know. Okay, so well, that I wouldn't listen. But we're to talking anyway. about folks that you were already a fan of, right? Uh, right. Like, um, who's your favorite musician? Uh, well, okay. I, I guarantee it's going to be somebody I've never heard. A good, of. actually, Absolutely. a good example of this. There's a, a singer of a band from called Pantera, Phil Anselmo, okay. who I'm a huge fan All right. of. I actually heard it. Have heard yeah. of Pantera. Yes. And he did. Uh, he had a, an incident a couple years ago where he said he was drunk at a show uh, that was a tribute to his former guitarist, and he said like white power essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why I still listen to his music is because. Since then, his apologies and the things that he has done to sort of correct that behavior have seemed genuine to me. I See, I feel like once you get into hate speech or using uh, racial uh, terms, like uh, Michael Richards, who played Kramer, did the same thing, but thrown around the N-word like crazy. That is more than just political views, right? That's really hate, you know. Uh, but I guess some people say Roger Waters does the same thing. One year from you, does... If you're a fan of somebody and then they go down a path politically that you find reprehensible, do you stop listening to their music, watching their movies, reading their books, whatever? Let's say it's Stephen King. Let's say it's uh, Ric Flair. Let's say it's an athlete. Let's say it's a movie star. Whatever the case may be. 800-848-9222. We'll also go through your mail in just a bit. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Pink Floyd featuring Roger Waters. 
Roger Waters begins all his shows by calling Joe Biden a war criminal. He used to begin all his shows by calling Donald Trump a pig. And he begins his shows by saying, if you're one of those people who says that uh, I like Roger Waters' music, but not hearing his political views, then F off. What about that? If you're a fan of a performer and they choose to become really outspoken when it comes to politics and the, uh, the view that they choose to express, you find absolutely repugnant. Do you still keep watching their films? Do you still keep listening to their music? Do you still keep reading their books? What do you think? 800-848-9222. Well, this is a treat. We have uh, noted political consultant and crisis communications expert Obi Murray, a guest on this show, regular guest on this show, who's overdue for a return visit, calling in. Obi, what's your take on this? Hey, Frank, welcome back. How it's great vacation? to be back. Thank you. How was, how was your son in the, in the sand? He was great. Actually, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some Carmine stories uh, within the next minute or two. But he was wonderful. He, he handled – you know what his big problem with the sand was? He liked it. He liked the beach, didn't cry or anything. He really wanted to put seashells in his mouth. And his mother and I were concerned that he might choke. So we had to dig a, sort of like a moat around him so that when he would stick his hands towards the sand, he couldn't get any shells. Okay. And, and with the ocean, the waves and everything? What do you got yeah, there? the water was a little cold for him, but, uh, but he, okay. he, he enjoyed watching it and listening to it. I think it reminded him of the um, white noise machine that he sleeps with. But he, he, he liked it, <laughs> but it was a little cold for him. Good for you. That's terrific, terrific. So, entertainment and celebrities and, and their politics. Who you go? The questions are like, who are you going to the concert with, or who are you watching the movie with? Are you home? Are you paying big bucks for it? And how much time is it going to take? Well, let's. If what, you're going what, away what, for the weekend you... to Boston to see a show, yeah. that's a pretty big investment. Mm-hmm. If you see Waters, uh, the Wall on Netflix, and it's already paid for, and you're at home, whole different conversation. You know, so, it's it's funny. Yeah. I, I think you were at Trump Tower with me one time in um, in December of uh, twenty thirteen, and Trump was was had just uh, seen the night before Elton John's show, and he was going on and on about what an amazing performer Elton John was, and then. Uh, the next time I was at Trump Tower, the person that was coming in there to see Donald Trump after after we were there was Neil Young. Now, I guarantee you both Neil Young and Elton John have said the most awful things about Trump. I wonder if Trump still listens to their music. Well, that, that first meeting was 13, right? Yeah, December so, 2013, I think. Uh, no, right. so, so things were different then, and based upon the Neil Young meeting when that was – the politics all weigh into it because it's for him his perception then and who he can meet with and who he can't meet with. So where you come down is it's the level of commitment. If you're not going to take a trip across the world to see a band or a singer who who is putting out a message that you can't stand. But if uh, if you're flipping the channels and uh, and Goodfellas comes on and Robert De Niro's in the midst of one of his monologues, you'll still watch it. Yeah. Also, don't forget when once it's it's, uh, if it's a sporting event or if it's a movie, there is no politics then. When they're a live concert in the middle of the excitement, right, and euphoria, right. all of a sudden, you two at MetLife a few years ago, unbelievable, and then a buzzkill, and then unbelievable again. But I, you knew you're walking into it too. My friends were going, had a great time, terrific, 
See, that's a good point of the difference between a live performance and something like a film. They're not going to they're not going to interrupt Goodfellas to have Robert De Niro turn to the camera and saying, you you know, Trump's a jerk. But Bono can stop in the middle of a song or Bruce Springsteen can stop in the middle of a or a set and then make his political uh, view heard. That's interesting. You don't see that for the most part during a baseball game, as always, uh, Obi, a fine, fine point. But also Pitbull. I saw Pitbull this weekend at Mohegan Sun. Magnificent show. Unbelievable. He got a little political, but you didn't know it. It was what you should believe in the sense of what I believe and how great the world is. It wasn't a lecture about what you should believe. What were there people Very different. Were there people in the crowd that you noticed that took umbrage with Pitbull doing that? I noticed a silence kick in across the across the stadium. Interesting. Sure. Interesting. Yeah, sure. So it's all the combination of those things. But I don't want to be lectured to. I don't want to take away the buzz and excitement of that euphoria that you get. But, hey, if I know I'm walking into it, it's a choice I make. Uh, Fair point, Obi. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Corey is in Florida. Hello, Corey. Hello, Frank. Hope you had a great vacation. Thank you. Absolutely. I hope to hear some of your stories later on. Absolutely. Just two Two quick uh, examples of uh, how I view this. I got kind of peeved at De Niro when he went off about he's a dog, he's a this, that, and all the other things. But he's still one of the best actors ever in some of my favorite movies of all time. Well, so I mean, and I think I, a lot of people would would say the same thing of Roger Waters. Right now, I'm not that big of a Roger Waters fan, but but. You know, I do uh, Pink Floyd's great, excellent, and all that. But um, so De Niro, uh, I kind of put it off, and like I didn't watch The Irishman when it first came out, and there were, you know, all kinds of mixed reviews, and I didn't want to kind of uh, pay for, you know, add to his. But I eventually said, you know, let me get over that. He's one of my favorite actors. Let me watch him. And 20 minutes into that movie, I'm sorry, it was just bloody rubbish. Okay, and I just thought that was it was awful. Well, I know, I but change it, it's one you know. thing. It's one thing if you don't like the film. It's another right. if you're gonna not going to watch the film because of the politics of the star. Corey, and, thank you for the for the call. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank. Uh, hey, Frank. Do you hear me? I hear you perfectly. Yes. Okay, thank you for taking the call. Um, I hope you had a good time. Thank you. Uh, um, I think that I'd rather have a performer or an athlete, et cetera, be outspoken about their political opinions and about other opinions as well, rather than have them, you know, have values that are beneath my values, the standards of my values, and have them perform in a way that doesn't go with what I believe in, or you know, if if they're trying to. Be be anti-Trump and not, you know, be not not saying that they're really anti-Trump, but it's, you know, like AGT America's Got Talent, they're officially you know a bipartisan situation, and really they're people that are against Trump, and you know it, it comes out in in little bits at a time. I'd rather have someone that's outspoken so that I know where that person stands, and if I'm interested in that person. And their values. So uh, this is interesting, Alex. What you're saying, I think, is you don't want to hear um, that a performer 
sneaking political propaganda into entertainment, you'd rather know from the get-go, this entertainer believes this way, and they're going to hit me over the head with it, and I can make the decision whether I want to right. deal with that but, in order to see yeah, the but, music or, or, the, or the movie. But politics is just the smallest uh, issue out there. There's other things like um, that are also politics, but not at you know about Trump or Biden, like uh, for instance, trans the, the whole idea of transgender or uh, identity that a man could identify as a woman or a woman. You know, Disneyland, that, you know that they're not a coming out officially that they're against Trump or that they're Democratic, but they're going along with this whole woke uh, agenda. And I'd rather have someone that's honest and I know where they stand and and with their values rather than having them work uh, officially be bipartisan and then work in a way that is not by the standards that I live. Gotcha. Gotcha. Alex, thank you very much for the call. 800-848-9222. We'll continue to try and take a few of your calls. I'll give you some some stories from Cape May, and we'll go through the mail as well. Uh, We'll try and get to it here, if not uh, a little bit later. This is uh, The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ask for money and get advice. Ask for advice, get money twice. I'm from the dirty, but that Chico nice. Y'all call it a moment, I call it life. This one Christina Aguilera. This is uh, Pitbull and Christina Aguilera. I like both of their music. I, I would listen to them. I mean, would the, I, the, I listen to them if um, they said something so crazy that I, I would almost want to vomit hear them listening to? I don't know. Probably. I probably would. I probably would. Um, but um, I can understand why people... Don't want to understand why they go in another direction. So I I tell you, you know what? My wife and I came back from Cape May, New Jersey. um, Monday, we got home around noon, maybe a little later than maybe around 1230. So it's about two hours of unpacking and then another hour of getting the house back into some semblance of shape. So since about. 3.30 Monday afternoon to the present moment. Do you know what I've been doing? Trying to go through all of my email, and I am fighting a losing battle. I I can't, and I'm not thoroughly reading these emails. I'm just going, I'm giving them a once over, simple scan. All right, anything urgent here? Anything urgent? Does that require a response? No. I mean, I'm spending on some of these emails one second. Some 30 seconds, some 45 seconds. Others require a little more. But it's not as if I'm reading these emails telematically. And I am nowhere near the end of my unopened email. And you know what? I I don't know if you do this, but one of my many, many neuroses is I have to answer these emails in chronological order. 
I have to answer them in the emails, in the in these emails, in the order they were received. So I don't know. Do you do this? I think I'm the only one that has these kind of hangups that do this. We'll do commendations in ten minutes, by the way. So it creates all sorts of weird situations. For instance, I was communicating with a woman who works here about ordering new business cards because I'm out of business cards. And I'm I'm giving her all the information, what should be on there, you know, this and that. And I'm spending some time on this email. Then 30, 40 emails later, I get word that she's no longer working here. That she stopped since last I came to work, she's no longer working here. So I wasted all that time responding to this email of uh, this person that no longer works here. I mean, hopefully it gets forwarded to somewhere, but... I don't know. So if I haven't gotten back to you and um, in a timely manner, I'm getting there, working my way through it. So we did go to Cape May last week. We were there from Monday to Monday, had a great time. It's really one of our favorite places, and I definitely recommend it. There's a lot of great restaurants there, and we got to visit many of them. The beaches there are beautiful, and we spent some time on the beach. And there's a lot of great history there, a lot of great antiquing. And my wife and I rented, uh, and Carmine, for his first trip down there, my wife and I uh, and Carmine rented a house for a week with two other couples, our friends uh, Virginia and Kevin and uh, Sheila and Sean. And we had a great time, a lot of fun. Uh, You know, K-May is one of those places where I feel like I could be there for a month and still not do everything. Every year I go and I want to, I try to balance doing the things that I enjoy doing and that my wife enjoys doing, and then sampling new things that I haven't yet uh, done, and I'm never able to do it all. And it's, I was there for a week. It's a substantial amount of time. We had good weather. The one thing that I was really hoping to do this year that I didn't get to do was um, visit the new Harriet Tubman Museum. I'm really impressed with what I've seen from this Harriet Tubman Museum, and I was outside of it, but they were closed at the time. I didn't get to go in. And uh, I uh, would definitely like to make a trip there sooner rather than later. Hopefully, well, I won't wait until next summer, and I'll get find a way to get there before then. But uh, it's supposed to be great. I'm looking forward to seeing that. I did pick up. I went to an antique shop and uh, picked up some old political buttons. I got a, a Nelson Rockefeller for president button, a John Lindsay for president button, 1972, Jesse Jackson in 1984, the People's Party in 1972, which, who did they nominate? You remember who they nominated? Dr. Spock. Not Mr. Spock, Dr. Benjamin Spock ran for president with the People's Party in 1972. I got a Eugene McCarthy button from 1968, and um, I got got my uncle some old coins because he did me a favor, and my wife bought a couple of things too. So uh, it was a great time. You know what one of the highlights of the trip was, though? is we were staying in the same room as Carmine. Usually at my eight-month-old son, Carmine, he stays across the hall from us in his own room. We have a baby monitor, and we monitor what's going on there. But in Cape May, we all stayed in one bedroom, and my wife was prepared for the worst. She was thinking that he was going to be up all the time, and it was going to be keep one of us from sleeping or both of us from sleeping. The kid slept like a champ. There was only one night that he didn't sleep the whole night. He got up at 2.30, had a brief bottle, went right back to sleep. 
and he also napped like a champ. I don't know if the heat knocked him out or something, but he was really well-behaved. He really didn't stop us from doing much. He was delightful. And I just received word moments ago from my wife who said 16 minutes ago, your son is up to his old shenanigans. The good behavior was only on vacation. So uh, apparently he's up right now and uh, and listening. So Carmine, just because your dad is not home doesn't mean you should you should be awake and bothering everybody. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. A very cute kid, though. I know. I thought everybody thinks their child is uh, is cute, but I really do think he is more attractive than the average child. I posted on Facebook. I don't know if you saw it. It's on uh, Facebook.com/slash Morano fan. A photo of him wearing a WABC cap. I'm wondering because he did wear this cap, and he was spreading the word. You know, it was a substantial amount of money to rent this house in Cape May and go out to all these restaurants and get the beach tags. What a scam that is, by the way, these beach tags. Pay $40 for the privilege of sitting on dirt for a couple of days. But, you know, that's what you do on vacation. So I'm wondering, since my job is to be on WABC and promote the radio station that I'm on and so forth, is there any way, since we posted the photos of Carmine... With that cap, is there any way that I can claim the expenses related to this vacation as a tax deduction? Do you, I mean, that is not, I'm not entirely joking. I'm wondering, could I? Why not? Maybe? Dining and entertainment expenses? Maybe? I don't know. Uh, But, um, you know, it's funny, the one thing, Uh, The one drawback, and this is one of those things that everybody tells you, and then I guess you don't fully comprehend it until you have a child. The one drawback of going to the beach with an eight-month-old is the amount of stuff you need to carry with you. So we're carrying basically a trailer worth of stuff to the beach. I mean, it's really an enormous amount of stuff. And you really realize what a what a hurdle this is when you forget something and when you have to go back. So, for instance, on Wednesday, um, we were at the beach. We start setting everything up. My wife says, where's the umbrella? I said, I don't know. I don't see it. She says, well, you got to go back, go back and look for it. You got to go back and get it. Go, go back, go back to the house. Yes, go back to the house. All right. So I drive then four minutes to the house. I don't see it there. So what do I have to do? I have to then go buy another umbrella. But I left my wallet at the beach with my wife and child. It's only a four-minute drive. So now I have no money and no umbrella. And a wife and child that are poised to overheat. Now, fortunately, for for me, not for them, as I'm driving back to the beach, I see our friends, Virginia and Kevin, and they had a biking incident. I think Kevin might have fallen on the bike, and they asked me to give them a ride to the beach. So I said, sure, sure, I'll give you a ride to the beach. I give them a ride. I said, by the way, Virginia, do you think I could borrow your credit card? I'll Venmo you the money so that I could go and buy another umbrella. So I go and buy another umbrella. 
come back to the beach, walk all the way back to the beach. And now I find I can't find Virginia's credit card. Is it possible? Did I really lose this credit card? I'm looking all over the place. I'm asking the beach inspector, asking the lifeguards, nothing. And then I'm looking now for 20 minutes. Finally, I go back to the car. I find it in the car. But this is now an hour and a half. And then the next day, you lug it all out there again. So next year, we're making some changes. We're renting a box that's on the beach so we can store stuff there and making some other changes. Overall, it was a lot of fun, though, uh, but I'm happy to be back. Until next hour, commendations coming up next hour. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I know what you're thinking. It's not Monday. It's not Monday. Can we do this? Well, yes, we can. It's my first show back, and I didn't want you guys to have to wait any longer for this week's edition of... The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. I must begin with a sincere commendation and a sincere bit of gratitude for my Uncle Steve, Steve Siriaco, who happens to be my godfather as well. And he's in the auto body business, always has been. And somebody, I guess maybe when I was parked here or somewhere else, someone hit my the corner of my car and... Busted up the corner of my car. Now, in in the next few days, I am going to either return my car or buy it out and hope to resell it. Either way, it would help to have a car that's uh, that's not all screwed up. So while I was away in Cape May, my uncle says, "Leave the keys in your in your mailbox. I'll come take your car, have it fixed." Sure enough, we came home yesterday. The car looks better than it did the day I got it. He went all out and cleaned it. On top of that, and wouldn't let me give me any. Uh, wouldn't let me give him any money. I wish that I could. I'm not going to mention the name of his business because I don't want to be accused of payola, and that's what that would be. But if uh, any of you know my uncle Steve, Steve Siriaco, let him know that we're giving him a shout out on the air. And uh, hopefully, this buys him a lot of goodwill. I told him I'd buy him dinner this week if he wanted to come over. And uh, and do something because it was really nice, really really nice. He went above and beyond, and let me give him a sincere commendation. Let me give a commendation as well to Anthony Wallace. Now I'm usually not about rewarding inmates that sneak in contraband. However, this gentleman did the kind of journalism that has done everybody a tremendous service. He was an inmate at Rikers who used smuggled cell phones to make videos showing the lawlessness inside Rikers Island, inside the city jail there. And he says he did so because correction department staff denied him necessary medication. Anthony Wallace, a hip-hop artist from Jamaica, Queens, who goes by the name Teflon Dadon, told the Daily News that he got fed up with the inattention unsafe conditions, and the lack of basic services. I don't blame this guy. He's He was suffering seizures every day. 
And so he decided he's going to demonstrate what goes on there. Sure enough, it's it's crazy. It's a lawless society behind bars. So I say good for this guy. I'm not encouraging any of the other inmates listening to me right now to go ahead and do this. But I think in this case, you go through the proper channels. Nobody's addressing it. The only way it's going to change is by bringing public attention to what you're doing. Anthony Wallace, I think, did the right thing here. I want to give a commendation as well to Bo Jackson. I've always really loved Bo Jackson going back decades. Read his book when it came out. I think it's called Bo Knows Bo. It made me like him even more. Loved him as a football player, and I even liked him as a baseball player. A lot of baseball fans are critical of Bo Jackson as a player, but I'll tell you what. Even as a ball player, that combination of power and speed was rare. And to be a two-sport athlete, the guy was a professional baseball player and a professional football player at the same time. And what he has done has made me like him even more, and it's given him a commendation. Did you know this? He covered all of the funeral expenses for the families of the victims of the Uvalde school massacre so that they would have one less thing to worry about as they grieved. So Jackson flew in and presented a check for $170,000 to the governor of Texas while in Uvalde to cover the expenses. Now, I think this is great. I think this is the true spirit of America, lifting our neighbors up in times of crisis. And I think, uh, I think this is very generous, and I think this is, it says a lot about Bo Jackson's character. And look, this is, some of you may be surprised at the next commendation here, but got to give a commendation to the MTA. There is nobody more critical of the MTA than me, not, not this time. The MTA has announced a public-private partnership to provide universal cell coverage and Wi-Fi service to all above-ground subway and uh, rail stations and through all 418 track miles of subway. So now you will be able to be on the subway and have access to the Internet through your phone or your wireless device. This is great, and it's more than just convenience. I mean, I certainly appreciate that if you're going on the subway now and you're listening to me on the app, you could still keep listening. But this is also a public safety issue. At a time when we're seeing subway crime go up, don't we want people to do things like um, record or live stream a crime incident? I think so. I mean, there are innumerable other answers uh, to how this could help. There's a lot of apps that are based on Wi-Fi what, that are used for communication. WhatsApp, for instance, and a number of others. So I think this is great, and I give the MTA a commendation for doing this. I also want to give a commendation to Sharon Stone, who posed topless on Instagram at the age of 60. Now, I'm giving her a commendation not only because she looks great posing topless, and uh, any woman that looks this good posing topless, I mean, should certainly do so. But I think in our culture, which is so obsessed with youth 
and so obsessed with having people think that they don't count once they turn 30. I think this is so wonderful that Sharon Stone can send the message that you can still be in your mid-60s and be sexy. I think this is a nice thing. I know a lot of older adults that are even older than this that are very, very uh, sexually active and that are all about wanting sex appeal to be a part of their persona. And yet some people get to a point in life where they feel as if sexuality is something they have to be ashamed of. And I think this is great that Sharon Stone is sending the message to all the 64-year-olds out there, yeah, that you can be a senior citizen and still be sexy. So good for you, Sharon Stone. And the, the, the reviews on social media are just through the roof. Everybody, everybody loves it. Um, not everybody, but a lot of people. I also want to give a commendation to Patterson, New Jersey. Patterson, after enduring record numbers of violent crimes for the past two years, the city saw a 26% reduction in shooting incidents during the first six months of this year. This is great. This is great. Now, look, they had nowhere to go but down. Crime was so bad there. But uh, I think we're moving in the right direction. Newark, Camden, Jersey City, and Elizabeth also had similar decreases in shootings and victims. But Patterson was uh, the most pronounced. I want to give a commendation to vitamin B6. It is looking like vitamin B6, some new information here, might play a pivotal role in boosting your mental health. This according to Jess Eastwood, a doctoral student in nutritional psychology at the University of Reading in Britain. In one study of nearly 500 university students that was published a couple of weeks ago, they, Ms. Eastwood and her colleagues found that those who took high doses of vitamin B6, 100 milligrams per day for about a month, reported feeling less anxious than those who took a placebo. So their findings also suggested that vitamin B6 might play a role in tamping down the increased brain activity that occurs with certain mood disorders. So if you're struggling with anxiety, maybe try vitamin B6. Now, I realize it's only one study, and there's still more research necessary, but I'm going to give vitamin B6 a commendation until there's evidence to the contrary. I want to give a commendation as well to the Mayo Clinic. They have topped the list of the U.S. of U.S. News and World Report's best hospitals. Uh, that's right, the you, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, the best hospital in America. Uh, penultimately, I want to give a commendation to Costco. Now, usually, I know what you're saying. I'm the guy that's critical of big box stores and you're supportive of small business. Well, there's one thing about Costco that everybody seems to like. And my mom worked for Costco, I think, for about four or five months. And she backs this up. They really like the Frankfurters, the hot dogs. You can go into hot do- to Costco and get a giant hot dog for a dollar fifty, and they're very popular. And according to the CEO of Costco, they're not raising these prices. This is how we fight inflation. 
the $1.50 Costco hot dog, and the 99-cent Arizona iced tea. Prices go up for everything else, and they are keeping these prices the same way. Good for you, Costco. Keep that Frankfurter $1.50. And finally, I want to commend the employees at a fruit stand who found a wallet. Gary Tognetti's daughter and her friend were manning his fruit stand in Gilroy, California, when an older man asked for some cherries for his drive down to Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills. After the man drove off, the girls noticed a wallet had been left behind. It was sitting in a bit of corn. It was only the next day that Tognetti's 15-year-old daughter showed him the wallet. You know whose wallet it was? William Shatner. Shatner lost his wallet at the fruit stand, and Tognetti's daughter and her friend recognized him as the only man who bought the cold cherries, and they got him his wallet back. They reunited Shatner and his wallet. By the way, uh, I'd like to talk about her more later if there's time. If not, maybe we'll do it tomorrow. So this Mar-a-Lago raid sort of screwed me up. Uh, I want to give a posthumous commendation to Nichelle Nichols. And I've talked about her many times over the years. I think you know of my fondness for her, who played Uhura on Star Trek. And ironically, she and Shatner had shared television's first interracial kiss. And for a time, show, uh, stations in the South would not carry Star Trek for that reason. So commendations to everybody uh, who deserves one this week. And if you did something good this week and you didn't find yourself getting a commendation, tough. Keep trying. Keep trying. Jeffrey Lickman joins me in a moment to talk about this uh, Mar-a-Lago raid. We'll get into the legal implications. And knowing Jeffrey, I'm sure he'll insert some of his political commentary as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We are in the midst of one of the biggest legal stories that we've seen in a while and one of the biggest political stories that we've seen in a while. So we have woken up a fella that is not exactly a uh, shrinking violet when it comes to being outspoken on both legal issues and political issues. We have Jeffrey Lickman, veteran criminal defense attorney. He's represented the likes of John Gotti Jr., El Chapo, and a whole bunch of other bold-faced names of every variety of criminal in the federal courts, in the state courts, you name it. He's also the host of a very popular podcast, one of the fastest-growing podcast that there is. It's Beyond the Legal Limit with Jeffrey Lickman. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me, Frank. So, Jeff, before we get into what exactly happened with this raid at Mar-a-Lago, just so folks understand your perspective, because it seems like so few people are able to actually be objective. If folks like Trump, they're viewing this as some sort of a witch hunt. If folks don't like Trump, they're viewing this as the last stop before he gets the electric chair for treason. Just so folks understand where you're coming from, from what I remember, you're you're a pretty big fan of a lot of Trump's policies, especially on uh, foreign policy, but not a big fan of him and his personality and that whole thing. Is that basically a fair characterization? 
I don't think that really is. I mean, I don't care about his personality. That's not a reason why I would support or not support um, a politician. I, I think he's an idiot, and I think that a lot of the things that he, he's done or didn't do um, were because of his idiocy. And had he been more competent, what happened today never would have happened. Had he cleaned house, um, the deep swamp that he constantly talked about that he was going to do, but for four years he did nothing. Jeff Sessions, Chris Ray, uh, Rex Tillerson, uh, all these guys just stayed in their jobs forever. Uh, the various generals that refused to uh, follow his orders, he just never fired anybody. And he talked about cleaning out the swamp, but he didn't do it. And this is what happens when you have your enemy down and you don't uh, knock them out. All right, and now you have this search at, at Mar-a-Lago, which is frankly bonkers. All right. And I, I don't support Trump, but I think what happened today is, is absolute madness. So let's talk about what exactly happened, what we know. What's being reported is that this raid was tied to removal of classified material uh, in an unauthorized manner. What do we know at this point about what happened? Apparently, there was a search warrant that was signed by a judge to uh, search Mar-a-Lago. They went into it. They broke into a safe. They were allowed to apparently do that. There was a padlocked room, apparently, at Mar-a-Lago. But, you know, representatives from the National Archives, I believe, were there in June and took back some of these documents, some of them that were marked classified. But normally, in a situation like this, you contact the guy's lawyer and say, listen, here's the documents we need, and you supply them. Um, the only reason they would do it this way is if they believed that Trump was either destroying documents or was going to obstruct justice and refuse to turn over some of the documents, which I haven't seen any proof that such a case. And when you have a former president, you know, this isn't, um, you know, some wise guy. Who they're investigating. This is the, the last president of the United States. And to uh, send uh, a team, a team, an army of FBI agents to the man's home um, and basically barge in and take over the place for hours while they search the place from top to bottom, it's absolutely stunning. And I'm not a supporter of Trump, but I'm certainly not a supporter of weaponizing the bureaucracy, which is what's happened here. And this is, again, the problem I had with Trump. It's not because I didn't like his personality. It's because I felt that instead of doing what needed to be done to fix this country, he was too busy fighting on Twitter with imbeciles. And this is what happens. This is what remains. As soon as the Democrats get into office, they don't mess around the way Trump did for four years. And I think it's clear that they're doing everything they can to harm the guy. It's before, right before uh, the midterms. They're about to get destroyed, the Democrats, because they've destroyed America. It's only fair. So what do they do? Well, they're going to have to use some misdirection and blame something on Trump, make him look bad. One, to prevent him, I suppose, for... Uh, from running against, you know, Biden or his corpse, whatever's going to be left of him in two years, Biden, or they want to sort of change the uh, the whole narrative of the United States, of the country, in order to salvage uh, some seats uh, come November. Just so folks understand from a legal perspective, Jeff, you, and we're talking with Jeffrey Lickman. He's the host of uh, the Beyond the Legal Limit podcast. You could just search it on any podcast app. It's worth listening to. The legal perspective here 
the a judge signed off on this. Now, we know there are very different types of federal judges on the federal bench. Do we have any idea which federal judge signed off on this and who, if that judge may have been a Trump appointee or an Obama appointee or someone else? I, I don't think that we have any of that information yet, but I don't even know that it makes a difference because the, the Trump appointee was the judge who handled the Steve Bannon trial uh, in D.C. and absolutely eviscerated him. So I'm not sure that Trump uh, judges are even pro-Trump. Uh, I don't know that Trump's made too many great decisions on judges. He certainly made a massive amount of mistakes. I wouldn't be surprised. But also keep in mind for the listeners, when Hillary Clinton was alleged to have used a a private server for her emails when she was uh, the secretary of state of the country, which was completely against the law. Somehow they didn't bust into her home uh, when uh, Hunter Biden, who was engaged in all sorts of, uh, you know, slimy deals, tax fraud he's being investigated for. Uh, he had uh, people, some of his business associates were in the White House uh, meeting with the big guy, Joe Biden, where he could get his 10 percent. Completely inappropriate. Uh, the guy was getting abused by the Chinese. Somehow he never had his home searched. But but President Trump, this is a former president of the United States. This what they did to him is bigger than anything that was done to Richard Nixon in Watergate, where, where he certainly committed a crime. There's not even an allegation that Donald Trump committed a crime here. And whatever crime he might have done was withholding or, or taking out uh, documents from the National Archives that he shouldn't have. Is this the same as, as, as the Watergate break-in? This is madness. This is what happens when you allow uh, liberals to take over the country, as we did. And again, this is another reason why I'm pissed at Trump and your listeners are like, what's wrong with this guy? Why does he hate Trump so much? Well, one of the reasons I hate Trump is because he didn't take the presidency seriously enough. It never seemed to be an important enough job for him. And he allowed Joe Biden, he allowed these really horrible people to get into the White House, and now they're weaponizing, as I said, the bureaucracy, not only against Trump, but the rest of us. They're going to have, what, 80-something thousand more IRS agents? Frank, who do you think they're coming for? They're coming for their enemies. They're coming for us. Just so folks know what's needed to get a search warrant, there have been some people on social media and elsewhere that have said something along the lines of, well, a judge wouldn't have signed off on a search warrant unless there was probable cause that there was some crime committed or some documents related to a crime. As somebody that's been through this process a lot, what actually do you need to show a judge in order to get a search warrant? Well, you don't really need to show all that much. I mean, understand that this is not a trial that a judge is receiving evidence in. He's receiving evidence from one side, and it's completely unchallenged because the defense has no opportunity, as I said, to rebut it uh, when the information is shown to a judge. It's basically a rubber stamp. Uh, 99 times out of 100, a judge will sign whatever a federal agent or a prosecutor puts in front of him and says, here's all the things that we think we can find uh, in Mar-a-Lago, and here are the uh, the uh, potential crimes that we think have been uh, violated. But again, this is one side. This is a massively partisan set of prosecutors and federal agents, the FBI. They are massively against Trump. And they, the, the sad thing is, Frank, they've been against Trump since the moment he got into the White House. And it took him too long before he figured it out. And once he realized that he didn't do a damn thing about it, Chris Ray 
the guy who completely abused them. Who Trump uh, appointed. Was, who Trump appointed. Who Trump appointed and didn't fire. Well, guess what? This is what happens when you have an enemy down. You got your, your, your foot on his neck. You don't let him up. You get rid of him. Trump didn't. And now he's paying the price today. And it's it's maddening. I would have loved if Trump would have cleaned up the swamp, if he would have gotten rid of these partisan hacks. Instead, in my mind, the reason why he never went after Hillary Clinton uh, when he certainly had the opportunity, he could have gone after some of his enemies, is that he believed in his mind, if I don't go after them, they won't go after me and my kids. Well, guess what? That was a tremendous miscalculation because they don't care. They're going after the Trump kids. They're going after Trump. They're going to go after anybody aligned with Trump, anybody who's near Trump they go after. They're trying to put in jail. And, you know, Trump had these four years, and we all, you know, watched him fighting with the the stupid Mika and what's her her idiot husband's (laughs) name, Joe Joe Scarborough. Scarborough. I mean, this is what he was doing every day. He was fighting on Twitter, and this is why, again, Ron DeSantis, Frank, he is everything that Trump wishes he was. He's Mm. everything that Trump says that he is. This is a guy who walks the walk, who talks the talk, who actually cleans house of bad people that are against him, partisan, leftist, crazed uh, liberals. And this is what DeSantis does. He's smart, he's tough, and he doesn't need to play on Twitter all day like an idiot. All right, well, That's the guy we need. He'll put an end to this. Putting aside the the morality or the eth- ethics of going after your political enemies with the Department of Justice and the FBI, let me ask you some legal questions about how something like this unfolds. Now, as you mentioned, this is totally unprecedented. Not only is Donald Trump the uh, f- former president of the United States, first former president, I think, ever to have his home raided by the FBI, but he's also one of the leading candidates for president in the next presidential election, all very likely to run. For an investigation like this to go forward, who has to sign off on a raid, do you think? Is it the attorney general himself? Is it the head of the FBI himself? Is it both? Is it the president? How high do you think an investigation like this goes? You know, you'd like to think that it should go as high as the White House, the president. But look, let's be honest here. I mean, Joe Biden doesn't know what day of the week. He doesn't know what month it is. Uh, this is a guy that, that can barely keep his diaper on. He's not making any decisions like this, but he doesn't have to. He's just filling a seat, and he's got uh, these partisan hacks around him that are basically running the country. It certainly is the attorney general. Certainly it's the head of the FBI. And these are all people that hate Trump. I mean, is this really – with all that's going on in the world right now, with all that's going on in the world, you've got Chinese spies, you've got Russian spies, uh, you've got the Chinese doing everything they can uh, to to uh, take over the world, basically. You've got Russia that's slaughtering people in the Ukraine. Uh, they're doing everything they can to harm America. And this is what we're doing. We're going after a former president because he may have some documents that he shouldn't have. I mean, for God's sake, is this where we are with this country? I mean, I guess in a way, Frank, I'm thankful that they're going after Trump for these records. Uh, perhaps maybe they're spending less time on trans rights when they're going after uh, uh, Trump. So maybe it's a break. But again, you don't have to be a fan or be somebody who dislikes Trump uh, to be repulsed by this. This is bad. If you don't like Trump, wonderful. But guess what? They're doing this to, to President Trump, and that's what he is. He's President Trump still. 
they can do this to any of us. And they're, they're running amok right now, and you should all be very scared. Every one of your listeners, this is no joke, because this is really an abusive process, weaponizing the bureaucracy. And this is why, when you get your chance in the White House, before you've got millions and millions of illegals that are soon going to become Democratic voters, and it's going to be tougher and tougher in order for a Republican ever to get back into the White House again, you get that opportunity, you better clean house from day one. And that's what was so maddeningly frustrating about Trump. He had the four years, and he just never sent – you never sensed any urgency from him, Frank. You never sensed – you know, he talked uh, about what he was going to do, but he never did anything. He just, you know, sort of meandered there and, you know, ate a lot of fast food, I suppose. Assuming there was some evidence of illegality here, though, what would have been the proper way for the for this to go about? Should there have been a special prosecutor from the beginning because of the politically sensitive nature of this? Or should there have been some different handling of this case because it's such a high profile case with such political implications? very simple. You don't want to appear uh, that this is, you know, a partisan uh, hit job. You'd like to think that the Democrats want to make it appear as if they're handling this in an objective manner, that this has nothing to do with politics, that this is an objective uh, FBI that is perhaps doing an investigation. But this isn't what the country is anymore. All they had to do was simply call the man's lawyer Mm. and say, look, you know, the National Archives recovered some of these documents from Mar-a-Lago in June, and we believe there may be some more. I mean, for God's sake, what do they think that he has? Does he have something that's going to, you know, uh, impact our national security? It's it's highly unlikely. You call up. You keep it quiet because you don't want to appear as if this is a partisan move, and that's all this is. <clears throat> it's It's stunning to me. It's absolutely stunning to me how divided this country is, Frank. You know, you're only like 12 years old, so you don't remember (laughs) how the country used to be. And I think it really became wildly partisan, I would say, around the time uh, when we invaded Iraq, I suppose, is when, you know, just the two sides just could never get along. There was just such hatred and mistrust. But the idea that you'd go after the former president like this, it can only be perceived as one way, even if it's absolutely accurate that what he did was a crime. You still don't do it because it it looks stinky mm. uh, and it's, it's not required. There's a reason why Alvin Bragg, who the uh, Manhattan district attorney, who could not be more of a partisan hack. There's not more of a leftist, scummy partisan hack than Alvin Bragg. All he cares about is politics and all he cares about is getting his social justice and all he cares about is reparations, all that crap. This is a guy. I mean, I haven't heard him mention reparations yet. Well, it's reparations in a different sense. When mm-hmm. you when you don't have bail for people, that's reparations. He's trying to help uh, the black folks because he feels that they've been. Uh, All right. Well, you know, that, okay. that's your your characterization treated. of why he's doing what he's doing. But go ahead. Yes, he, your point was that even Alvin Bragg didn't go forward with a Trump prosecution because it was such a politically loaded prosecution. It looked so bad. Mm-hmm. Look what happened uh, with this, uh, Steve Bannon's uh, co-defendant in the Manhattan federal case, okay, with the build the wall fraud. This is a guy that was wildly guilty. The defense was a clown show. There was no defense at all to it. The fact is the guy just simply stole money uh, under the guise of the fact that he was uh, 
uh, you know, trying to raise money to build the wall. He just stole the money. The defense did everything they could, which was very little. It wasn't the defense's fault. It was the fact that there was no defense. Guess what happened? Eleven of the jurors in 15 seconds voted to convict him. But one juror in Manhattan said, this is a witch hunt. There's no way that I'm ever going to convict Trump because I see what you're doing. You're going after him in Manhattan for a reason because you think you're going to get 12 liberals. They couldn't convict him here. So that's why Alvin Bragg realized, you know what? This isn't something I really want to do because I'm going to end up losing. It's going to make me look bad. I'm not going to get a conviction. And it also just stinks to high hell. You'd think that the people in Washington would realize what they're doing and what it tells me. They know that it looks like a partisan hit job, and they don't care. And that's something that should concern all of us. They simply don't care. And for them not to care that this looks bad, they know that they're going after the Republic, any Republican uh, supporter, any Republican voter. And you'd think, where's Mitch McConnell tonight? Is he out there screaming and yelling? Where are the Republicans? You don't hear a lot of screaming, do you, Frank, from Republicans? Uh, not, not thus far. Given what you said, though, about the politically sensitive nature of this and how this is going to be viewed by close to half the country, do you think that it's it's possible, and you've dealt with the FBI more than most attorneys, and there have been times when I've seen you cross-examine FBI agents and you actually feel bad for the agent because you call not only their conduct into an indivi- in an individual case into question, but their entire career, their entire life. Uh, because you have to think that the FBI is going to have every move that they make scrutinized here, do you think that maybe they have an open and shut case in terms of criminality, understanding that uh, this should have been handled differently and understanding that this was handled with an effort to do maximum uh, political damage and maximum embarrassment to the former president? Do you think the FBI would be positive that they have sort of a a smoking gun before going forward with such a public raid like this? You'd like to think that, but I don't think that's the case. I mean, does this party, does the Democratic Party seem all that concerned about November to you? Do they seem all that concerned about 2024 to you? I don't think they do. I don't think they're all that concerned at all, even though the fact that Biden has the lowest approval rating, like maybe in the history of America at this point of his presidency. They don't seem to be all that concerned. And that worries me. Why aren't they all that concerned? Well, they seem to have something in their pocket that makes them believe that this is not going to be as bad as it could be. And that's, again, also very frightening. I don't believe for a second that they care um, if this is an open and shut case or not. I think they realize they've got the power and you can't stop us. And that's very scary when you consider that his approval rating is so low. And by all accounts, he should uh, the Democrats should be getting their clocks cleaned in November. They should be losing the Senate. They should be losing the House. I'm not so sure it's going to happen anymore. They seem a little too confident for people that seemingly has, have no support. I mean, who in their right mind at this point, after what's been done to this country by this administration, by this political party, how absolutely, utterly insane do you have to be to vote Democratic? Well, I mean, you I know, mean, there serious. are hundreds of millions of people that may feel the same way about uh, folks that would vote for uh, Donald Trump. So what it, we've seen a lot of high profile cases over the years. 
where the target of the investigation, which begins over X, is ultimately tried and in some cases convicted for some sort of derivative charge from the investigation itself. I'm thinking of my friend Roger Stone, who uh, was charged and convicted of multiple counts of lying to the FBI, Uh, thinking of Martha Stewart, Uh, other cases involving people like Michael Flynn, uh, Roger Clemens to some extent. What do you think the likelihood here is that this is an attempt to get either Donald Trump or folks in Trump's orbit implicated in some sort of a derivative charge? You know, the only thing I can think of is that they're concerned that Trump will beat Biden or, again, whatever's left of Biden in two years. I don't think that he's going to run because I don't think he's either going to be alive or even capable of, of speaking complete sentences in two years. I think that it suggests to me that the Democrats are afraid of Trump running. They feel that he's going to win again. They feel that whatever uh, cheating that they've uh, been able to employ in the past, they won't be able to do again because they're so far behind right now uh, with Biden because of what he's done to the country. Um, I, I think they feel they got to knock him out one way or another. The problem is going to be is that the more they do to Trump, the more it galvanizes his supporters. Right. Um, and right. not only is it galvanized. Well, that's why I'm not sure there's as much of a political benefit uh, to this as as you and others seem to think that there might be. Well, if look, if the guy's under indictment, Frank, it's going to be very difficult to run for president. I mean, this this you know this is not a banana republic. Uh, we're not the Palestinians where the leading presidential candidate is rotting in an Israeli jail for killing five Israelis. I mean, we are you know, the great democracy of the world. And if the guy's under indictment, he's not going to be running for president, even as somebody as crazy as Trump is. So I think that it has to be an effort uh, to damage Trump. But, you know, keep in mind that you've got he's got a base that's not a huge amount. It's not half the country. His base is MAGA base. I don't know if it's 25 percent of the country, but there's a lot of voters in order for him to win an election. He's going to have to get conservative Democrats. He's going to have to get, um, you know, middle of the road Republicans that are repulsed by his idiocy over the four years. And that's the only way he's going to win. And something like this, this is going to galvanize those people, too. It's not just the MAGA people. They're not going to change. As Trump famously uh, supposedly said that, you know, he could commit a murder on Fifth Avenue in the middle of the day and his supporters will still stand behind him. But what about everybody else who's so disgusted at the direction this country's going. It's bad enough with, you know, the 40-year high inflation, uh, with the economy in the toilet, with foreign policy, the worst decisions that could have possibly been made. You know, we were told by the Taliban when uh, Biden abandoned the country, uh, Afghanistan, to them, don't worry, we're not going to let other uh, terrorists into the country that want to harm America. And who do they end up having to kill inside uh, Afghanistan, who's standing on the balcony of his expensive home? Well, uh, the, the head of uh, Al Qaeda, who who thought up uh, right. Emin Al Zawahiri, right, Doctor Al Zawahiri, exactly. Uh, I mean, it, this is this is the idiocy that we have from the Biden administration. Uh, so you know, who, anything is possible. We cannot let these people take over the country and keep control of it for much longer. Because I don't know how much more. Jeff, I'm almost out of time, but there's two final legal questions related to this that I have to ask you about. One has to do with the president's ability to declassify things. I remember in um, 2017, there was a lot of reports that Trump gave classified information to classified information to the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. And then ultimately, all the legal scholars, even people that didn't like Trump, said, well, look, 
the president can declassify anything he wants. If the president decides this is no longer classified, you can agree with that decision, disagree with it. But there's no legal basis for uh, for disputing that. Why, if Trump wanted to take certain items to Mar-a-Lago for whatever reason, why would he simply not have just declassified whatever information that he wanted to take? Surely he must have had some lawyer in his orbit, either on his personal orbit or on the White House staff, that would have given him that advice. Why wouldn't he have done that? You know, I think that you could ask a series of questions about why wouldn't Trump do a lot of things, Frank. Um, And this may be like number 700 in line. I don't know. I think it depends on what uh, the the documents were, but nothing would surprise me that Trump did or didn't do. I mean, he doesn't exactly, um, you know, know all the rules, Frank, and he may have some lawyers around him. There's not that many left that are still standing by him, are there? No, for a reason. That's fair. And uh, finally, a lot of people may remember the incident regarding Sandy Berger, President Clinton's sure. national security advisor, who after Clinton had left office, he essentially stole some documents from the National Archives, shoved them down his pants, and then ultimately pled guilty to a misdemeanor for doing that. How does, again, we don't know all the details here, but based on what we do know, how does what we're seeing from Trump uh, compare to that Sandy Berger case? Well, I mean, Sandy Berger wasn't a former president, and Sandy Berger, I think, was actually stuffing documents down his pants or in his socks um, and got caught, I think, as he was leaving. I don't believe that there was any kind of search warrant that was uh, executed at his home, but even then, I mean, this is a, a, a minor person compared to the president. When you have the president of the United States, if you think that he's committed a crime and you're going to do something like this, I think it should be for a crime that's really impacting national security. I mean, if it's regarding documents that don't really mean, you know, more than a hell of beans, Frank. Well, well, and we don't know what what we really want to do. Ultimately, whatever they are. Right. I mean, are they that important that we felt the need to send, you know, an army of FBI agents? And we know how biased the FBI is. You know, when I was a, a younger lawyer, Frank, if you can believe. The FBI was filled with conservatives who actually were law and order types. If you can believe that a law and order organization was actually law and order people filled inside. Now you've got these crazed leftists, and it's the same thing with the U.S. attorney's offices. If you look at these prosecutors, nine out of ten federal prosecutors, when I was a young lawyer in 1990, they were all Republicans. Mm. They were all law and order types. Now they're crazed leftist lunatics. They're lunatics that are in the U.S. attorney. They're so far left that you, you can't even believe it. This is what our government is now filled with. And I think it really started with Obama. Uh, Obama was the one that just changed all the culture in Washington. And, you know, we all sat around uh, and watched. We sat around and did nothing while the schools were filled with teachers that brainwashed. Uh, Jeff, we're going to have to end it there. I, I, I could talk with you all day. We'll talk again soon. Jeffrey Lickman, if you uh, are in the mood for committing a major crime, make sure you have his number close by. If you're in the mood for this kind of commentary on a regular basis, be sure to subscribe to the Beyond the Legal Limit podcast with Jeffrey Lickman. Jeff, thank you. Thank you, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Magic by Olivia Newton-John, who unfortunately passed away yesterday after a uh, lengthy battle with uh, breast cancer. A really incredible performer, a wonderful singer, hit songs like this, uh, Let's Get Physical, um, you know, a number of others. Love that music video that she did for Let's Get Physical as well, which was a very creative way to market that. Those of you that have seen the video know what I'm talking about. Obviously, her role opposite uh, John Travolta in Greece is just an absolute classic. A wonderful actress and a wonderful singer. And someone that seemed like a wonderful lady and who everybody that knew her had nothing but great things to say about. So, uh, sorry to see her go. But uh, she lives on through the art that she created. Also, among the other people we lost recently... Dodgers legend Vin Scully. We're going to get into uh, a look at Vin Scully's life and career in just a moment. We're going to take your calls at 800-848-9222. But first, I I don't know if Curtis mentioned this when he was filling in last week, but uh, I wanted to encourage you to listen to the most recent edition of The Racket Report. A Racket Report is a podcast that I host, which is, you know, all about issues related to organized crime. And it's not a, in spite of what people that don't listen to it think, it's not a love letter to the mob at all. We talk with journalists. Yes, we'll talk with gangsters. We'll talk with family members of gangsters and all sorts of other people, lawyers and prosecutors. So my guest last week was John Gleason. Federal judge, but before he now he's retired, just retired. He wrote this book called Gotti Wars, all about his prosecution of John Gotti, senior. Thirty years ago, and we're coming up on that thirtieth anniversary, or the, actually, this is the thirtieth anniversary. Thirty years ago, he was the prosecutor in the trial that convicted John Gotti. Now, uh, no, no question about it, the prosecution did a good job. In that case, and we spoke uh, in some detail about not only that case, but some of his other cases. The thing that has never quite been okay with me is the fact that the federal government, and look, Gleason wasn't the judge at the time, he was just a prosecutor, but the federal government essentially allowed Sammy the Bull Gravano to murder 19 people and then have a get-out-of-jail-free card, do less than two and a half years in prison for the murder of 19 people, when my point is they would have convicted John Gotti anyway. So a substantial amount, and I give Judge Gleason credit for doing this interview, a substantial amount of the conversation that Judge Gleason and I had was about the appropriateness of making this sort of a deal with the devil. In this case, a 19-time murderer, Sammy Gravano. Should he get a get-out-of-jail-free card just because he's willing to testify against John Gotti? Well, that was one of the key issues that we spoke about. Obviously, you were not a judge in those days, and uh, you were not the person that uh, gave Sammy Gravano his prison sentence. But um, given what you just said, that this case was probably going to end up in a conviction without Gravano, and given the fact that Gravano, by his own admission, had participated in 19 murders, does it um, 
is it is it is it moral? Is it ethical? Is it right that Sammy just essentially got two and a half years in prison for participating in 19 murders, given the fact that his testimony might not have been needed to convict John Gotti in the first place? Sure, it was right. And I'm the first to admit this is a completely legit debate. You know, do we reward people who commit very serious crimes? Should we reward them at all? Do we reward them too much? That's a really interesting debate, and a lot of countries don't reward cooperation like we do. But let me tell you one thing, Frank, that is almost never on the table. You know, Gravano got five years. He admitted to 19 murders. But what's almost never on the table when this debate happens is, you know, Gravano helped us put away 47 guys. Not all of them were murderers, but most of them were. And most of them not only committed the same number of murders, you know, we didn't know for sure because they didn't flip as Gravano. But if Gravano didn't help us put those guys in prison and take them off the street, is there any doubt in my mind that many, many more murders would have happened? You know, those guys weren't going to stop killing people. So, you know, it's a cost-benefit thing. You want an insider's, you know, you want a, a front row seat to a prize fight. You got to pay for the ticket. Wow. Pretty uh, bold. Now, believe it or not, he actually says a lot more and is pretty brazen, uh, I must say. And I, I was very respectful, but this was, I think, a very interesting interview. So I'm not going to play you the whole thing. It's about 45 minutes. If you want to hear the whole thing, just search the Racket Report on any podcast app, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Podbox, whatever. Just search the Racket Report. Hit the subscribe button. It's the most recent episode. If you've already heard it or you're already a subscriber, please um, leave a positive comment on wherever you're hearing this uh, this podcast and give us a five-star review. That will help other people discover it. I think you're going to be really pleased with this interview. This was one of those interviews I actually paid to have it transcribed because I wanted this documented, all the things that Gleason was was saying. So um, I think you're going to be hearing a lot about this interview in the future. It's already – I've got – you know, you don't even want to know the people that have reached out to me to talk about this interview. Uh, mobsters, lawyers, mob lawyers, including uh, a lot of journalists – um, and I didn't think that there was going to be this much interest because the book was already out. I got a note from a lawyer that used to represent President Trump, actually, and Steve Bannon's lawyer, interestingly enough. So I got quite a response to this, and I think if you listen to the whole conversation, you're going to see why. 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. Um, What you were speaking about with the celebrities, um, I worked in the film industry for a while. And, you know, there were a couple of people that I spoke to, and they were very nice, and I never had a problem with them. But some of the celebrities could be so incredibly crude and Rude well, give it who? Tell us one name. Give us one example. 
I don't want to say. Oh, I, come I on, Carol. Say. You're among friends. <laughs> um, well, uh, Robert De Niro, for example. Really? Okay. Food I, and rude. Yeah. I, I actually have heard that from a couple of people, actually, Carol. Thank you. Um, my friend Lauren was a fan of his, and she wanted to take a picture with him. And Harvey Keitel, they wouldn't take a picture. And she wasn't interrupting them or anything. She was waiting patiently. So I've heard that about De Niro. I still like his acting. All right, we'll take your calls in a moment. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Whenever I meet someone, or whenever I get to know someone that I've already met, and the subject goes to what we do for a living, a lot of times people will ask about my radio career and my fondness for the medium of talk radio. And whenever I'm asked about this, I always tell the truth, which is a big part of my love for AM radio. And for talk radio began because of my love for baseball. I I still am a baseball fan, still watch the Mets, still pleased that they beat the Reds yesterday. Ah, big red machine, not so big, not so red, not so mechanic, am I right? But um and I'm optimistic about this year's Mets team. But I'll be honest, I don't have the same enthusiasm for being a fan of baseball as I did when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Uh, I don't. I mean, I, I, some, I still try and watch the games, and I still try and get you know, that degree of enthusiasm. I don't have it. I'm, I'm focused on other things the way I used to be solely focused on baseball. But when I was a young man, a child really, we didn't have cable. So I would go to bed every night listening to baseball, and then I'd wake up listening to great talk programming on some of those same stations. So I've always had a special place in my heart for baseball and baseball announcers that do it well. Obviously, I'm gonna, I knew the ones in the New York area best, both radio and television, people like Ralph Kiner, people like uh, Phil Rizzuto, people like uh, Mel Allen. People like, uh, you know, Bob Murphy back with the happy recap, you know, and uh, people of that ilk. And so I've always been a fan of great broadcasters. A lot of great baseball broadcasters out there. Uh, look, the Met Mets uh, fans have been blessed to have Howie Rose calling their games for a while. He's terrific. There has never been a better baseball announcer than Vince Scully. Vince Scully 
is an incredible, incredible human being. And he just passed away a week ago today at the age of 94. He was a broadcaster with the Dodgers, first in Brooklyn, then in L.A., from 1950 to the year 2016. The man's voice was incredible. Absolutely incredible. He had a voice where immediately you knew that it was him. He had a voice that was so distinctive. He had a way of painting pictures with words that I am so incredibly envious of. He had a way of accompanying people on uh, magical journeys. And I never met Vince Scully, never spoke to him. I've tried to very badly over the years. Either meet him or schedule a phone interview with him, and I've been unable to do so. Yet, I felt like I did know him. And I guess maybe this is the hallmark of a great broadcaster. I felt that when he was calling a game or giving an interview, that he was speaking directly to me. And I think a lot of folks felt that way. This was a man who was from the Bronx, went to Fordham, played baseball at Fordham, and I think there's a strong case to be made that he was the greatest baseball announcer of all time. Served in the Navy for two years. And those of you that listen to the Fordham radio station, WFUV, Vince Scully was one of the founders of that radio station, WFUV. He was a student broadcaster and a journalist at Fordham, founded the radio station there. And then he gets a job working with CBS Radio and the CBS Radio affiliate in Washington, D.C., WTOP, which is still a powerhouse station to this day, they hired him as a fill-in. Red Barber, a name that a lot of you old-school Dodger fans and Yankee fans will remember. Red Barber was the sports director of the CBS Radio Network. He recruited Vince Scully for their college football uh, coverage. Scully impressed his boss with his coverage of a November 1949 University of Maryland versus Boston University football game from Fenway Park in Boston, despite having to do so from the stadium roof. So he expected an enclosed press box, and yet Scully still did great. He left his coat and gloves at his hotel, was freezing, and still killed it with his coverage. Never mentioned his discomfort on the air once. Do you hear, I mean, one of the key complaints about me that I see in the Facebook group is that I don't stop whining about every single minor inconvenience that occurs to me in life. You compare my constant whining with Vince Scully, who broadcasted an entire football game from Fenway Park, the stadium roof with no coat and no gloves and didn't complain once. Um, so Barber, Red Barber, mentored Vince Scully. And Scully would follow Red Barber's advice on being an impartial announcer. You know, I hate that with a lot of the Yankee announcers. I don't, know, I don't want to pick on them. A lot of people have their own style. But I hate it when the announcers sound like they're rooting for one team. And the Yankee fans like that. They like a homer, not me. And um, when the Dodgers, so ultimately Vince Scully, just to give you an example of the impartiality, Vince Scully was the Brooklyn Dodgers announcer. 
from 1950 to 1957, or thereabouts, the Dodgers move from Brooklyn to L.A. in 1958. And so management approached Vince Scully about taking a pro-Dodger tone now that the team was the only one in its city. To which Vince Scully responded weeks later, later by saying he would stick to objective and factual coverage. Now, for a young guy, and he was young in 1958, for a young guy to do that, it takes a lot of gumption and a lot of confidence. And um, I, I, my admiration for Vince Scully as a person and as a talent knows no bounds. And the fact that he was able to keep doing this. And to keep doing it at the level of excellence that he was able to do it until he was in his 90s, or almost 90. He died at 94, so he retired six years ago. Okay, so he was 88 when he retired. It's extraordinary. And, you know, we've done those segments on people who have stayed too long, should have retired then, should have retired at this point. Vince Scully did not fall into that category. He was a sharp, sharp broadcaster well into his 80s. Did a great job. And so he got the Medal of Freedom. I believe it was from uh, President Obama. And when he got the Medal of Freedom in 2016, John Dickerson, who was hosting Face the Nation at that time, he did a beautiful profile on Vince Scully. And Vince Scully... You know, the first question John Dickerson asked him, and I, I'm a big fan of John Dickerson. I did not like him initially. I, I don't want to say I didn't like him. I had nothing against him. But when he first took over Face the Nation, I thought he was incredibly mediocre. In fact, in those days, I used to come out with the list of the 10 least interesting people of the year, and, and John Dickerson made my list for the first year that he was on Face the Nation. Totally won me over. I, I came to view John Dickerson as not only a very skilled interviewer, but a very but a, a keen intellect. A guy that knew baseball well, knew presidential politics well, knew all, every aspect of the news well. And I'm sorry he's not hosting Face the Nation now. I know he's doing, I think, the morning show over there, but I don't get to see that. But he did this wonderful interview with Vince Scully. And the first question he asked was about calling a game. And I can't tell you how often I think of what Vince Scully said here. Now, the as you'll hear, the the quote that he gives is not his own. He took it from someone else. But it was the first time I had heard it. I think of these words every single day. And I don't think a truer words, uh, any truer words in broadcasting or really in any performance-based profession have ever been spoken. Listen to what Vince Scully tells John Dickerson, and this is from 2016, about what the key is to calling a game. Listen to this. I would quote Lawrence Olivier because I've lived by his quote. Apparently some young actor asked him about his success, and he said, my success comes from a humility to prepare and a confidence to bring it off. And I think the more you prepare, the more confidence you have, and they go hand in hand. That's the best of all. He's absolutely right. And I've tried to live by that as well. Sometimes I don't get to prepare as much as I'd like to. But the shows that I am always the most confident in 
are the ones that I've prepared the most for. And here's a little bit more of that interview with John Dickerson. I was in high school at the time, sitting in the back of the auditorium with the best athlete on campus. We were chatting. And he said, what would you like to do when you get out? And I said, I'd love to be a baseball announcer. He said, I'd love to be a, a baseball player. I said, wouldn't it be amazing if I became a baseball announcer and you became a major league player? It happened. Three years into my career, he came up to bat. I was on the air, and he hit a home run. And I had to call my friends home run in the big leagues. And that's why I would always say to kids, don't be afraid to dream, because it can happen. I love that. I love that message, not just for kids, but for adults. I still consider myself very much a dreamer. I think I think that's wonderful. And Vince Scully, and if you want to comment, you can, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Vince Scully, for baseball fans over the course of the last half century, has provided the soundtrack to the most memorable moments in the history of baseball. There's been one, count them, one perfect game in World Series history. That was when Don Larson, pitcher for the New York Yankees in 1956, threw a perfect game against the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time. And Vince Scully was there. Immediately, he says it. The greatest game ever pitched in baseball history by Don Larson. A no-hitter, a perfect game in the World Series. That call is immortalized in Cooperstown at, at the Hall of Fame. And that was, keep in mind, Vince Scully was the Dodgers announcer, not the Yankees announcer. And he still sounded excited because it was an exciting moment in the history of baseball, so much so that we're talking about it more than a half century later. Sandy Koufax. His perfect game, 1965. There's a 29,000 people in the ballpark and a million butterflies. What a way with words. My goodness. 1974. Hank Aaron breaks Babe Ruth's record for most home runs in a lifetime. Babe Ruth, incredible career, retired with 714 home runs. 1974, and keep in mind what was going on in the country in 1974. You still had, particularly in the South, a lot of animosity towards blacks. And here, a black player is breaking the record, which people thought would never be broken at the time, of a white player, and by the way, one of the most iconic baseball players in history. And Vince Scully was keenly aware of everything that was at stake with Hank Aaron breaking that record. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. That's his ability to merge observations about sports, mostly baseball, but he also did some football, and what was happening in society at large, almost seamlessly, almost without thinking, it's something that I'm incredibly envious of as a broadcaster and incredibly awestruck by as a fan. Now, 
Met fans will remember this one, no doubt. 1986, Bill Buckner's error with the Boston Red Sox, which allowed the Mets to stay alive and win the World Series. Little roller up along first, behind the back, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Now, two years later, the Mets were in the playoffs again. You remember who beat them? The Dodgers. The Dodgers made it all the way. Won the World Series that year with a Kirk Gibson walk-off home run. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. I used to listen to him. Do you hear those words? A year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. I used to listen to him and almost look at him like Muhammad Ali used words like that. But he, Curtis does to some extent, although Curtis repeats them 9,000 times. Uh, kind of the the wonderment gets lost after the 900th time that you hear it. But did he write these down and have them ready, or did he just come up with them on the spot? A, a year has that's been so improbable, the impossible has happened. Did he just come up with that? Or did he have that written? Is that the mistake I'm making? I'm not having those brilliant lines written in advance and ready to go? Maybe. Now, it was very interesting. I remember I was working with John Gambling at the time, and we talked about some commentary that Vince Scully was doing in 20, I think it was 2015 or 2016. I think it was 2015. And, yeah, no, it was 2016, in which... He ends up, during the baseball game, talking about, of all things, Venezuela and socialism. Listen to this. This is a video that went viral at the time, six years ago, and uh, since since Vince Scully's passing a few days ago has developed a whole second life of virality. This is just uh, 2016, Vince Scully calling the Dodger game. Socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. And who do you think is the richest person in Venezuela? The daughter of Hugo Chavez. Hello. Uh, He did not repeat himself there. There was an editing error, but you got the point. He was very bold and very confident enough in where he was at the time to be able to make pronouncements about that from time to time. And I don't think that was concerted. I think that was really just off the, off the, you know, off the cuff. Then we spent a lot of time talking about the national anthem protest. Now remember Vince Scully, somebody that got the presidential medal of freedom, a Naval veteran and a Patriot. How do you think he found these national anthem protests when they were happening in sports? I have only one personal thought, really, and I am so disappointed. And I used to love during the fall and winter to watch the NFL on Sunday. And it's not that I'm some great patriot. Uh, I was in the Navy for a year, didn't go anywhere, didn't do anything. But I have overwhelming respect and admiration for anyone who puts on a uniform and goes to war. So the only thing I can do in my little way is not to preach. I will never watch another NFL game. 
And much like uh, Neil from Staten Island, he stuck with that. Stuck with that. Vince Scully, 94 years old. You're going to be missed. 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Ooh, Mike is in Astoria. Hello, Mike. Hello, Frank. Uh, first time listener. Um, I've been enjoying the, the broadcast. I, I, I didn't want to comment on, on the sports, but I wanted to comment about uh, President Trump. Uh, that uh, this this seizure, I think, is is more than unprecedented. Uh, uh, if we were to compare, it, say, with uh, Nixon, for instance, who was in trouble but then was pardoned, but uh, I feel that he went into the you know quiet and he was no longer any type of uh, say threat to uh, the opposing the opposition. So he never was. Uh, uh, indicted or, or investigated, whereas President Trump is being very active, and it is more than likely he will announce that he will run, and they're doing what they can to stop him. Uh, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but let's just say the cards fell as they did, and that COVID came along, and, and the president uh, lost the election. I, I mean, it's a bad time. I can't imagine uh, our current president running again. I think the, the state of affairs is so terrible that uh, it has to be somebody else, uh, whether Dick, like Dick Morris was saying uh, recently, uh, that it will be Hillary Clinton. So maybe they're in control. And uh, uh, somebody has a sign off on this, and it probably was Biden. But, uh, you know, maybe Biden's just a prop up there. Uh, uh, terrible to say these things. But, uh, you know, we've had President like Harding and such. And uh, uh, I mean, this is almost like an Oliver Stone movie in real action. It's like JFK, you know, just short of assassination, but to get him because he's a, he, he is a threat to the status quo of the of the system. Uh, I think many of us are believing this. I think people who are on the fence will come to realize this if it's told correctly, especially if it comes out there's nothing there. Uh, it just uh, uh, it's something that's it, I'm almost ashamed to be American. Uh, well, Mike, I okay, take, I was, take a breath yeah, there, Mike. Ahead. So let's say yeah. let's say then let's say there is something there. Let's say um, there's an investigation. And look, I, I don't dispute that uh, if the FBI and the DOJ were acting, you know, in a gentlemanly manner, that they could have uh, just called President Trump's attorneys and said, you know, we'd like this material, and the attorneys would have produced this. I don't think there was a need for this uh, this sort of a raid in a humiliating manner at Mar-a-Lago. But let's say the president was, former President Trump, was found to have taken classified information that he was not supposed to take from the National Archives. If if that occurred, does that do anything to alter the calculus that you just articulated? Uh, I, I just don't believe it needed to happen this way, where it's theater on the news, you know, raid at, at – at Trump, it's like you know, playing to the press. I feel like it, it, this was organized, and I am familiar with the press. I worked a twenty-year career at a major television network, and uh, I think that uh, this is—you know—they look for this like a—I uh, don't want to say public relations, but l- let's make a show of it. Let's oh do no, no, I, I agree. I agree. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying, you know, what? What if he's uh, shown to actually have taken classified information? that he didn't rightly have the ability to take. Well, what about other presidents in the past? Yeah. Do you think that they could have possibly taken? Well, yeah. I, mean, so I, we... I, I mean, Sandy Berger 
ended up, uh, you know, he got he had to plead guilty to a misdemeanor and he was only the national security advisor. But we'll see. I mean, look, um, we'll see where it goes. It's all speculative because we don't know what's in these 15 boxes anyway. We don't know why Trump was taking them. But uh, the only thing we know is about this FBI raid. We may cover this tomorrow with uh, Alan Dershowitz. We'll see. This is uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to do a $1,000 minute in just a minute. But let me say hello to uh, E. Frank in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes, uh, good morning, yes, Frank. Good morning. Uh, I'm not surprised uh, what happened to Donald Trump. I said it on uh, Frankie Russo when, on his show, and he asked me that, you know, w- how do you know about those things? I said, no, it, it's uh, those one of those things that do happen. And he says, you know, and then Frankie Russo started explaining to me that the government, these, these acts of uh, lack of integrity should be investigated, and that's the reason why Donald Trump shouldn't get away with certain things. But anyway, uh, Frank, I called because uh, I feel that Curtis Lee was said many bad things about you when you were on your vacation, and he scared me, and I'm very nervous. I'm extremely nervous because he said things that you, you're taking vacations that um, – um, Tony Bennett had to work all his life, and he didn't have it easy like many other people who were on the radio. Uh, that you know, the millennials are having it a, a lot better than than past uh, uh, their personalities who were on the radio in the past. So, uh, I don't understand why Curtis Lee continues insisting on saying things. And he, he was he says that you were his producer years ago. Uh, you have a good reputation, but he says uh, for, uh, Mr. Morano is kind of. Uh, a little lopsided when he does the radio. So do you, what do you think about Curtis Lee with state? I think Curtis is just having fun. I think he means it in good fun. I don't take it seriously. I don't think anybody should be bothered by it. Curtis is a great man, great broadcaster, a good friend. Uh, I'm flattered that he was able to fill in for me, given the rest of his workload, as I said at the top of the show, in one of the local commentaries that we do. So uh, Curtis could say whatever he likes about me doesn't bother me in the least. God bless him. Paul is in Babylon. Hello, Paul. Hey, Frankie. Hey. Uh, did, uh, do you remember the X-Files? Yes. Yes. Remember Agent Scully? Sure. That was uh, Chris Carter named her after uh, Vince Scully. You're kidding me. I didn't know that. Yes, yes, yes. That was, he was a big dog before, and Vince Scully was his guy. And he named, <laughs> he named her Scully. Wow. Sure enough, I just looked that up. You're exactly right. He absolutely did name uh, Dana Scully as an homage to uh, Vince Scully. That is wild. Thank you. Yeah, right, right, good night. Good night. Thank you, Paul. That's something. I had no idea. Um, hmm. Jeez. See, I thought I, I thought I knew what I was talking about. Goes to show you I don't. All right. We're going to do uh, the uh, $1,000 Minute. In a moment, if you want to participate and have an opportunity to answer 10, count them, 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then you can be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. And then uh, maybe we'll go through mail or maybe we'll go through something else exciting. We'll see. And maybe we'll save mail for tomorrow so I don't have to rush this. We have some good mail here. We have some good laudatory mail. We have some good hate mail. I'm hesitant to do mail now because I'm still, you know, behind on all the mail that I got while I was away. And if there's a gem in there, I don't want to not share it with you. So we'll see. But we are going to do the $1,000 minute straight ahead. So uh, call us at 800-848-9222 if you want to be a participant. We'll do that. 
in mere moments. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Once again, the great Olivia Newton-John singing about being physical. All right. We're going to try and do our best as a radio show to help you break the back of inflation by giving you $1,000. That's right. If you could answer these 10 trivia questions as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. It is great to be back. Hey, what did you guys do in terms of the $1,000 minute when uh, Curtis was here? You guys just didn't do it? Well, that's lame. I mean, these people are counting on this opportunity to earn $1,000, and Curtis just doesn't do it. Huh. How do you think uh, that would go if I were to fill in for Dominic Carter and uh, not do the Carter Cares segment? People would be pretty rightly so furious. So I take back everything nice I said about Curtis before. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Scratch it all. Scratch it all out. All right, let's meet today's contestant, Jose in Danbury, Connecticut. Hello, Jose. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Jose. Jose, have you heard this uh, portion of the show before? Yes, I have. Great. Okay. So you know what to do. We're going to ask you 10 questions. Uh, you get a question right. We're just going to move on to the next one, and you got to answer them quickly. We'll have 60 seconds, okay? Okay, sir. All right. Name a horror movie. Scream. How many sides does a square have? Four. Where did I go on vacation last week? Uh, Atlantic City. That's close enough. It's close enough. South Jersey, we'll take it. Constantinople is now known as what modern-day city? Mesopotamia. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You never, you never heard that song, um, that the the song um, about Istanbul and and Constantinople. Um, I might have. It does. That came out of left field, so that one blew me away. I blanked on that. It's, a, Constantinople. it's a fun <laughs> song, and, and if we have that, Matt, try and pull it. All right, Jose, I'm sorry you didn't win, but I'm gonna uh, no, pull, no, it was I'm gonna I'm, uh, I'm gonna put you on hold, and I guarantee you, you will never forget the original name for Istanbul. Now you will know that it was once Constantinople. All right, sounds All right. good. I'm gonna put enjoy you on the, hold. Enjoy the game. Enjoy your show. Oh, thanks, Jose. Appreciate it. You're nice to say that. I'm, I'm gonna give your information to Kenneth, and we're gonna give you a constellation prize. Okay. All right. Thank All right, you. Hang on. Hang on. So, uh, yeah, it's a great song. There's been a lot of different versions of it, but uh, it's all about Istanbul, was Constantinople. Ba, 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 ba. Do we have it? We can't play it. That's a bummer. Um, let's put that on the list for, for tomorrow. Let's put in a request for that one as well. And okay. It, what's it? It's called Inst- I- Istanbul. You've never heard this song either. Weren't you a I DJ? Might have. 
It's a very famous song. What's the name of it? I, I think it's called Istanbul, not Constantinople. <laughs> it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. It's uh, there was a lot of versions of it. There's one by They Might Be Giants, but there's a version back I, I think in the '60s. It's a it's a great song. It's a great song. It's catchy. That's why I figured that. Got, I I thought that was a pretty easy question. Would you have gotten that even by? Um, not knowing the it's from the fifties. Songs from the fifties. No, I would not know. You that. would not have gotten that. Oh, maybe that's too tough a, a thing. Um, but yeah, it was a novelty song, and it was it's been recorded many times. Um, Frankie Vaughn, the Big Muffin Serious Band, and the They Might Be Giants, Colonel Joy's Joy Boys, the Four Lads, all sorts of different versions. Of Istanbul, not Constantinople. Istanbul, not Constantinople. Uh, all right. Well, I'm sorry you didn't win, but uh, better luck next time. He seems like a nice guy. I was really rooting for him. All right. Hey, speaking of motion pictures, which we were doing after a fashion, I have had the opportunity to catch up on a few motion pictures of late. And I saw a very interesting film. It's on Netflix. It's about three years old now. It's a comedy. I had never seen this before, but my wife had seen it. I don't know when she went and saw it. But it was, it's an all-female comedy. It's called Wine Country. Have you seen this? It's very similar. It reminded me a lot of Bridesmaids. I don't know if you saw Bridesmaids, but they said Bridesmaids was like the female... Hangover. I could sort of see this being in that same vein. It's not as good as Bridesmaids, but it's the same type of humor. It's it's um, it was directed by Amy Poehler, who's very funny. First film she ever directed. It follows a group of longtime friends who take a vacation to the Napa Valley as a birthday getaway for one of them. Uh, Amy Poehler is in it. Maya Rudolph is in it. Rachel Dratch is in it. Tina Fey is in it, and there's one leading male role, and it's uh, Jason Schwartzman. It's a very good cast. The story is formulaic. The story is the kind of thing you've seen a hundred times. It is incredibly predictable. But if you're looking for 90 minutes of, you know, not having to think too hard as you watch a picture, laugh a couple of times then it might be worth checking out. It's called Wine Country. It's available on uh on Netflix. It's um it's not it's not laugh out loud funny. You're not going to hurt your your rib cage laughing, but it's amusing. It's amusing. I enjoyed it. So so that's that. All right. Uh I will tell you this. Tomorrow in addition to possibly having Alan Dershowitz on to break down this uh, Trump situation with uh, Mar-a-Lago, we're going to have Scott Weiner here. Do you know who Scott Weiner is? Well, then you are in for a treat. Scott Weiner is Scott's Pizza Tours. This man knows more about pizza than any person on earth. Even more than my friend Nino Coniglio. The guy is in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the largest collection of pizza boxes in the world. But it's not just that he has a collection of pizza boxes. He can tell you about the history of every pizza box. He can tell you about these different um, styles of pizza that go on all over, you know, all over the place. 
it's really very, very, it's, it's awe-inspiring to watch. So I'm looking forward to that interview. And maybe we'll take your call. So if you have questions about pizza, go ahead and do it. Now, meantime, speaking of people we lost, not just Vince Scully, not just uh, Olivia Newton-John, but one of my all-time favorites, Nichelle Nichols. Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, this was the first woman that I can ever imagine, that I ever was conscious of having a crush on. And I told my grandmother, I used to watch Star Trek with my grandmother, and I I thought this was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And I said to my grandmother, I must have been four, maybe five, I said, I want to marry Uhura. And my grandmother said that uh, I couldn't because um, Uhura lived in the future. But so that did dampen my enthusiasm for marrying her as a four-year-old. But it did nothing to diminish my fondness for Nichelle Nichols as as an actress and as a pioneer. Now, as I mentioned earlier, her kiss with William Shatner in the 1960s was the first interracial kiss on television. First one on television. That was huge at the time. And this was at a time, remember what was going on in the South at this point. And there was a time stations wouldn't carry Star Trek in the South because of that interracial kiss. And that's what a groundbreaking show Star Trek was. So Nichelle Nichols was featured prominently on the show in that you could see her and those legs. I mean, those legs and that skirt... I mean, you could see her, but they weren't giving her much to do. She never really seemed, there was not many episodes where she was a pivotal part of the plot. There were some, like Charlie X, where she got to showcase her talents, which included singing, that beautiful song that she sings there in the the episode with uh, Robert Wagner Jr. And... She was leaving the show. She was considering leaving the show after the second season. Ultimately, she didn't because of a meeting that she had with Martin Luther King Jr. Picture this, meeting Martin Luther King Jr. in 1967, year before he's assassinated, one of the most prominent civil rights leaders in not just the country, but the world. Uh, Here was Nichelle Nichols talking about her meeting with Martin Luther King. I turn, and instead of saying there's this face the world knows with this beautiful smile on it. And I remember thinking, whoever that fan is is going to have to wait because Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King, my leader, is walking toward me, not 10 feet away, with a beautiful smile on his face. And then this man says, yes, Miss Nichols, I am that fan. I am your best fan, your greatest fan. And my family are your greatest fans. As a matter of fact, this is the only show on television that my wife, Coretta, and I will allow our little children to watch, to stay up and watch, because it's on past their bedtime. 
And I said, which is all that I was able to say, my mouth just opened and closed. He said, we admire you greatly, you know. And I, he said some more things and, and the, the manner in which you've created this role uh, has dignity and so forth. And, and he said, you know, um, and before he said, I said, Dr. King, thank you so much. Um, and then I got the courage to say, and I really am going to miss my co-stars. And he said, what do you mean? Dead serious. What are you talking about? I said, well, I've had an off... He said, you cannot... And I said, well, I... I'm going to leave Star Trek because I'm ha- going to say have an offer to star in, in, in. I never got that far. I said, "Well, I'm leaving Star Trek." He's, he said, "You cannot. You cannot." And sure enough, she didn't. She stuck around because Martin Luther King persuaded her that it was so important for his children to see a black actor, a black character, interacting with white characters as an equal, and. You know what I did over the last week when I was off is I pulled up the an episode of Star Trek, the animated series, the animated series, which featured most of the voices from the original series. I think the only one that didn't come back was Walter Koenig, but the rest of the cast all came back. And there's one episode of the animated series. It's called the Lorelei Signal, where she actually gets to command the Enterprise And she always talked about, Nichelle Nichols, how she was sorry that she didn't have that opportunity in any of the live-action versions of the show. But she was an incredible singer, just an incredible lady. And uh, I was very, very sorry to learn. By the way, speaking of cults, we were talking about cults with Spencer Schneider earlier. Her brother died as part of the Heaven's Gate cult. You know all those guys that killed themselves in that cult when the comet came? Her brother was one of them. So she did not have an easy life, Um, but the last few years of her life were very, very challenging. And I talked about this a few months ago, I think in January, right around Martin Luther King Day, with Angelique Fawcett, who talked about how she got to know Nichelle Nichols. We hired Nichelle, brought her on, and, you know, it was just it was one of those unexpected friendships because as a producer, you simply, you don't expect to make friendships. You, you hire people, they work with you. You have a great time. You provide a pleasant atmosphere for them. And that's just about it. You go on your way, but she and I had so much in common in so many different ways. And, and we talked about everything and we became close friends. So now she actually, and she, go ahead, please. And she actually gave me away in marriage to my husband. Now, isn't that something? So anyway, Angelique Fawcett became very active in the Free Nichelle movement. This was sort of inspired by the Free Britney movement. And Nichelle Nichols had become a, by all accounts, well, by most accounts, a victim of an abusive guardianship. And I guess her son was involved, and it's a shame. I don't know the details of what happened But Angelique Fawcett seemed pretty convinced that Nichelle Nichols was suffering 
and was somebody that was a textbook example of elder abuse in her last few years. Michelle has suffered elder abuse. There are videos from uh, her son actually physically abusing her and verbally abusing her. And the videos continue to be released. I have fought for her rights in court for four years, uh, standing up for her to you know, get her rights. There were certain things that she asked for way back in 2013 because she had the idea that her son was going to do this to her. And there's a whole other aspect about this I can tell you about with her ex-talent manager, but let's just focus on right now. Um, she knew that her son was going to sell her home, not allow her to work or not visit her fans. And the things that she asked me to do for her is please make sure that if anyone ever tries to put me into a rest home again, there's a story behind that. If anyone ever tries to put me in a rest home again, please make sure that you have my back. And she asked me to make a video of her. It's called Nichelle's Own Words. It's on YouTube where she states what she wants in her life. She's very clear, she's very lucid, and she states exactly what she wants. Um, and then she told me, she said she just wants to stay in her home until the day she passes, and she wants to work and visit her fans. She knew where her bread was buttered, and she loved her fans. She really, truly loved Star Trek. And out of all the actors I've worked with, they're all amazing, but, you know, Michelle's my favorite, and she's genuinely cared about her fans. So. Right now, um, everything that she didn't want to happen in her life has happened. Uh, I got her, I think I fought for her rights and gained her maybe a year and a half of freedom. But then after that, the son uh, moved her out of the state of California to New Mexico, to a small little place in New Mexico. She lived on a estate property, a property with two homes on it, moved her out of the home, the only home she wanted to live and die in. He put her on a retirement tour pretty much immediately, and she doesn't barely get to visit her fans. So everything that she asked for in her final years have been defiled. She's been fleeced of all of her rights. So I am if her version of events is accurate, and I have no reason to believe that it was not, uh, I am sorry that she suffered so much. Uh, towards the uh, end of her life, but it is um, it is sad. But it, it's a great way to remember her her career and her life and what she gave to so many fans. Hey, by the way, I want to thank my friend uh, Mike Porcelli, who's a great guy and the world's greatest mechanic. Um, he alerted me that today is the 77th anniversary of the atomic bombs that ended World War II, obviously the second one, the one that dropped on Nagasaki. Uh, This is going to be one of the most talked about events in the history of human civilization. The two bombings killed between 129,000 and 226,000 people, most of whom were civilians, and it remains the only use of nuclear weapons in armed conflict. A lot of people say that there were a lot of lives saved because that bombing brought an end to the war, uh, but certainly an important event in hu- human history. By the way, I think I made an error earlier. I was talking about the Star Trek episode Charlie X, and I said that was Robert Wagner Jr. I misspoke. I have Robert Wagner on the brain, 
I meant to say Robert Walker Jr. Big difference between Robert Wagner and Robert Walker. Absolutely. So uh, my apologies and my thanks to Mike Porcelli for uh, reminding us that today is indeed the 77th anniversary of these atomic bombs. Now, um, and as he pointed out, because Mike is a mechanic, it was the mechanics who made them work. It was not just the scientists. The scientists get all the credit but no one knows the names of the mechanics who were, as Mike as Mike emailed me, equally important to the to the mission. So important to uh, important to keep in mind and to remember. All right, we'll do fifteen seconds of fame in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We have one, two, three, four, five open lines. One eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Great to be back. Thank you, Andy B. And if you're new to this show, we end this show by uh, giving everybody an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. We call it... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Let us say hello to Rick in Tom's River. Welcome back, Frank. Hope all is well. And we will miss Olivia Newton-John. And we will miss Vince Scully. Two of the great. Thanks. William in Westchester. Biden is throwing the rule of law into the dustbin of history, and you're blathering about a gal pal comedy. Great job, Frank. Mike in New Jersey. Thank goodness you're back, Frank. I love Curtis, but 27 straight overnights. The window was open and the ledge was calling. <laughs> Fred, Fred in Yonkers. Welcome back, Frank. Boy, did I miss you. You know, the flurry dories retired down at the face. We want the flurry dories. We want the flurry dories. Mike in Lake George. Welcome back, Frank. I wasn't a Poconos. I'm chilling out here in Lake George. Um, you know, great show as always. And uh, it, it's amazing what you just said uh, with Star Trek, the actress, the first interracial kiss. And the way she was uh, verbally and physically abused, uh, it's a damn shame. Uh, all the best, Frank. All the best. Neil on Staten Island. Happy 67th birthday to my brother Michael in Maine. Have a plate of steamies and a lobster on me. And finally, Cheech in Howard Beach. Please be advised that eating eggs is still eating chickens. How you doing? 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 Important words to keep in mind. All right, that slams the lid on things for today. Tomorrow we will be back. We'll bring you the latest on this raid for, uh, you know, at Mar-a-Lago. We're scheduled to talk with Alan Dershowitz, and we'll talk pizza as well. Frank Moreno, good day.